And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. Welcome to this edition of the Hagman Report. It is Friday, November 17th, 2017. Welcome to this edition. Welcome to our uh, radio show tonight. It's We've got a lot of stuff to cover. I feel, I feel inundated. How many people feel inundated with the news? I, I just feel totally uh, awash amid the headlines and everything else that's going on. Uh, but we've got a great show lined up for you tonight. Uh, first half hour, we're going to be talking about uh, current issues, of course, as well as the second half hour as we bring Alicia Powell in, uh, World Net Daily uh, writer, uh, journalist extraordinaire. And then the uh, second hour, it's going to be just a fantastic second hour with Doug Papa. Uh, this gentleman is, well, I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you what, he actually... Sylvester Stallone, that whole story, he's the one that broke it. He's the one that actually broke the story on Stallone. Uh, among other things, he's a U.S. military, a former U.S. Uh, military police veteran and a former law enforcement officer, a detective of the year. As a matter of fact, uh, he's got law enforcement credentials. But the um, the headlines, uh, Uranium One, email Clinton scandal, all of these, all, all of the corruption, what bothers me the most, Joe, is the fact that the Sessions Department of Justice has put the kibosh on the release of information about this, and, and they've they've actually um, obstructed justice, in my view. The Sessions Department of Justice mm-hmm. under Trump—it's it's amazing, and, and we've 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 heard this over and over and over again. And Robert Mueller. I said my morning show. And by the way, you can tune into Doug Hagman Radio Show from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Global Star and also on Blog Talk and not on YouTube, just on those two venues. And please, um, and also uh, Joe and John from 2 to 3 on Global Star and Blog Talk. What we would ask you to do if you listen to either one of the shows is please click on the follow button on BTR. Regardless of where you listen to it, if you listen to it via Global Star, just click the follow button on BTR. It raises our visibility. But, um, Joe, what do you make of this? The, uh, the uranium one? Well, yes. And of course, the, yeah, William Campbell has been identified by Reuters yesterday. He was been, he's been essentially outed. Now, the story that I got yesterday was that he, went public as well, but the timeline was cloudy and I got just was just got this verified that Reuters outed him. The the Justice Department actually outed him first and then he went public. So it was it was our own Department of Justice that initially identified him, followed by Reuters or gave it to Reuters and when I say the Department of Justice, I'm also including the FBI, current FBI in that, but specifically the DOJ. And Sessions has really done nothing to uh, uh, to follow this up. As a matter of fact, Sessions has downplayed the role of this FBI informant who bore witness to millions of dollars 
in briefcases. In, in briefcases. Changing hands. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what we do here. We, that's yeah. the payday, right? Yeah, I wish. Jeez, that would be nice. Can you, can you and we watched uh, the one lobbyist uh, who was getting paid $50,000 a month. That's William, uh, that's William Campbell. That's, and yes. we watched the Sean Hannity piece with John Solomon and um, Sarah, Sarah Carter. Carter. Yep. And this was about an article on The Hill uh, showing that the the uh, FBI informant Campbell, um, he's got a few things going on. He is apparently has cancer, which I didn't know that. Right. But right. he has videotapes of the Russians opening briefcases full of cash, uh, using it to blackmail and uh, grease the skids in the Uranium One deal. And we also learned in that interview that the FBI, McCabe, and the FBI <clears throat> listed the Hillary Clinton email investigation under a special designation. Uh, right. which which gave it special priorities and, and attention. M- meaning to keep it out of the routine mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, type of investigation, it, which which angered the rank-and-file members of the, of the FBI. Oh, yeah, and it should. Yeah. And what you said about Jeff Sessions, when we saw him testify earlier this week, that there wasn't, what did he say? I, I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but there's not enough evidence to For a special reopen, prosecutor. Yeah, to open the special prosecutor investigation. Which is completely false well, if he knew about this FBI informant, if he knows what the uh, contents of the videos that he has. But I would agree with I would agree mind. with him, though, Joe, only to, uh, if the Department of Justice did their job, I would say, okay, you really don't need a special counsel if the if the DOJ were, were, was doing their job. Now we, okay, however, we know that the Department of Justice, is, even under Sessions, is not doing their job. So I guess, yeah, I guess to that extent, we would request a special counsel in, in this case, right? I mean, yeah. So uh, all right. for me, the, the evidence, and for most people out there, it should be, I mean, we've seen plenty of evidence. Just the fact that, uh, you know, she signed off on this Uranium One deal. She received the bulk of the money into the Clinton Foundation, and then all the details that you detail on on the morning show, and then uh, what we get into here that we've gone over for the last weeks and months, there is so much evidence out there. And again, Hillary Clinton responded this week saying it would be an abuse of power to unfairly <laughs> target her, as she would it would be like an authoritarian regime targeting a political enemy, like they're just going after her because she is a political enemy or opponent, and that's absolutely false. There are several scandals that we uh, know that she was involved in that are provable to the point that charges should be brought. But even with this new information, even with this new FBI informant and the videotape information he has, will we see any renewed calls for a special counsel, possibly out of members of Congress, um, possibly by members of the DOJ? I doubt you'll see anything from the FBI. I doubt you'll see Jeff Sessions. Um reconsider or uh, get in front of the TV and, and say, you know, in light of these new facts, we're going to have to open an investigation. I don't see that happening. I don't see any accountability from the Hillary Clinton side that they're ever going to see. At best case scenario, I see her throwing somebody else under the bus to take the, the rap for it if it ever came down to that. Well, I, 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 I tend to agree, although I think because Hillary and Bill Clinton have lost their political clout mm-hmm. because they, they don't hold office anywhere, I think that now they're expendable to, to, by the by the shadow government, the permanent state, the deep state. I think they're expendable now. Um, uh, however, I, I think that you will see the first...
you. I think you're, you're going to go, you're going to see the low hanging fruit in this case, um, be hit first. But this FBI informant, they've got video. Now, now think about that. They've got video. They've, this FBI informant has video, has audio, and has actual documentation that directly implicates the Clinton Foundation, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, and others. And, and also consider this. This is something that, this is a transaction or a series of transactions that actually began in September of 2005. Who was the FBI director then? It was Robert, Robert Mueller. Who was the Department of Justice, head of the Department of Justice? It was Eric Holder. This, and by the way, who was the president? I'm sorry, in 2005, who was not, uh, let me back up. It was not uh, Holder as Department of Justice, but this goes back to 2005. Uh, this Who goes back to Department Bush. And, um, it wasn't um, Condoleezza Rice. She was the no, Secretary no. of State. Um, I, I don't well, know. I, I'll have to go back and look at my notes. But this began in uh, September of 2005 when when Bill Clinton found himself in Kazakhstan, and Kazakhstan has has $5 trillion worth of natural resources. That's where the story begins. And the story ends now, or it hasn't really, it's not ending, but the story goes right now to this FBI informant who was a consultant. It was a lobbyist for a period of time, and then a consultant, uh, and went to the Department of Justice and said, look, uh, I see bribery, I see wrongdoing, I see the selling out of, of our national security. Alberto Gonzalez in 2005 was the Thank Attorney you. General. Okay, that's right, Gonzalez. So, you've got two administrations, or one administration, one regime, or actually two regimes, I don't know, uh, presidential regime. You've got multiple Department of Justice people, but the, the real act occurred in... Um, Subsequent to 2010, well, around the 20, around 2010, under Obama, when the Russian government publicly announced the acquisition of, uh, Uranium One, and it, the, the purchase of Uranium One, and they, Vladimir Putin actually personally released the funds for the purchase. This is a huge deal. And if you go back into uh, into the Venona cables and the deciphering of the Venona cables. This is not the first time that our atomic secrets and our atomic material has been transferred to Russia through this kind of subterfuge and uh, mishandling and misappropriation. But, but no one wanted to hear it then, and apparently no one wants to hear it now. Now I've got a question, and you can answer this in chat. I don't. I know John is. Um, on chat, How, and, and I'm going to toss this question out because I don't know. I, you get if you if you're like Joe and I, we get so deep into the research, we don't know how many people really have researched like Uranium One. My question is: Would a special show, whether it's me, whether it's Joe, or whether it's uh, uh, the, the flagship show? Would a special show on Uranium One on breaking down the details? Would you like? Would anyone like that? So if you would, and John can certainly just let me know of the the results. Just put in. I don't know. What do you guys usually do? Like a one or something, right? So, and uh, we'll t- we'll t- we'll tally it up because this is complex, but it's also pretty simple. 
and it's just a case of bribery and espionage by the highest by the peoples in the highest level of government. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is actually fact. Now, Joe, a uh, lot of other news as well. Uh, the meeting of the Democratic Alliance, Democracy Alliance in Carlsbad, California, I spoke about today. Their yeah. agenda, their itinerary has been published. Reclaiming our progressive shakers. future. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> and this is uh, part of the packet that the folks who are attending the conference get. The Democracy Alliance strives to create a safe space for progressive funders and movement leaders to meet and discuss issues of common interest, develop relationships through dialogue and networking, and engage in conversations about progressive ideas and strategy. Some of the uh, things that they are going to cover throughout this um, this whole conference here, and it's very interesting. You can find the, the itinerary and agenda on the net. They say, uh, this is just a short synopsis of their key challenges. Turning resistance energy into electoral action. Mobilizing low-priority voters in the progressive base and reaching out beyond it. Fighting to take back the states. Learning from the health care fight and suiting up for the next big legislative battles, tax reform, jobs, and infrastructure. Hmm. Uh, understanding how this year's extreme weather disasters are making climate change even more of a political issue. And they, if you go through the actual schedule, they, um, ha- every, you know, like when you go to a conference, you get the itinerary from, you know, three to four is going to be Paul McGuire, and from six to seven or six to eight, it'll be Rust Isda. Well, that's the same thing here. And some of the, um, objectives here that they point out here, uh, here's one, California dreaming, question mark, California leading a new way forward. So I take that as they're promoting the progressive agenda and how radical it has been in California as going all across the nation. They talk about new fights in the resistance, 2018 midterm elections, tax reform. They want to, um, they're going to hear from George Soros. I thought I found that was an interesting one. I talk with George Soros. That happened today. And they, they go on to talk a lot about winning, how they're going to win the midterm elections in 2018. Um, how to get the progressive agenda to new minds out there. They also talk about religious exemptions, take aim at civil rights. And th- <laughs> this is a, a, a what's what of uh, liberal progressive ideas and political aspirations on how they want to transform the country into their socialist slash communist utopia. That's all this is. Wow. And it would be interesting to see. There's some, there's some notes, um, on this for the attendees not to leave any of the sensitive information laying around, especially when media or bloggers are involved. So they're telling them to hide their... Yeah, their how'd that work out for them? Whoops, somebody yeah. left that uh, that packet somewhere where they got it. Yeah, well, it'll oh. be interesting to see if people post some of the paperwork from the individual sessions. Um, as I said, I, I didn't read all of them, but there are a lot of interesting little and, and, and some of the sessions are by invitation only, so you've, you've got to be a certain level partner, kind of yeah. like a Patreon. T- but, but, okay. But, but, but see, the hashtag, and I think this is what, what a lot of people are, are not mi- are <laughs> missing. Okay. Building a progressive narrative in a Trump bubble. Yes, we can do it. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Uh, okay. Well, but I think they're operating under hashtag resistance. 
they're uh, they're promoting that. And of course, they're operating as the resistance. And I think a lot of people don't really realize that they're empowering the street resistance that we're seeing. And um, but what are they resisting? Well, they're resisting the they're Trump resisting agenda, the, the, the change ma- from yeah. the the swamp deep state, uh, you know, progressive new world order that they're trying to create. Right. They're resisting. They, they they're resisting nationalism, patriotism, yes. love of your country. Yes. Freedom, capitalism, everything that this country was built on. They're communists. They are communists. But, but, but they're, they're special. They're, well, the communist ideology is, is driving that agenda. At least communists were honest about what they wanted to implement communism to. Here, you don't have that. You have, you know, them trying to, uh, push this, this socialist communist agenda under a banner of doing it for the betterment of the American people. Well, in the 40, or in the, well, yeah, in the post-World War II era, that's that was the sort of the same model where they were there. There was a, the convert or the covert, I should say, um, CP Communist Party infiltration, and then there was the overt side of it. And I think that that was their model back in the the post World War II nineteen late uh, you know from really from well from nineteen thirty four onward, but really took hold after the after World War II. And uh, Diana West talks about this and writes about this in her book, Betrayal, uh, just an incredible book. But, um, you know, I, look, that's their agenda. That that, But, but see, and I, I want to just say this, because somebody had uh, on Twitter, had uh, on my personal Twitter account, when I sent out uh, Peter Chauka's article about Sean Hannity, I, I, I got a note from a conservative and it surprised me. It, it really surprised me, saying you should back off of supporting Sean Hannity. Okay, and I thought to myself, wait a second, who 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 else in, in the media landscape, in the corporate media, in the mainstream media, who is reporting on Uranium One? Who is talking about the the email scandals or the crimes? Who is talking about the the Clinton Foundation uh, crimes? It's only one person, really, and that's with any regularity, and that's Sean Hannity. That's why we're backing him. It, what would happen if if he was gone? And no one, and, and no one in the corporate media was talking about it. At least we've got a fighting chance in that venue. I'm not mm-hmm. saying we surrender to that venue. I'm saying it's just, that's, you go, keep going, you know? But anyway, so, um, yeah. So, so anyway, there's a lot of things going on. We've got, um, but I do think, I, I really believe, and I'm, I'm going to say this and toss this over to you, but the, the people who believe that Robert Mueller, Mueller, pick your pronunciation, um, the people who really believe in their minds intellectually that Robert Mueller is acting somehow on behalf of Donald Trump, I, I want to know what your thought process is on that. I really do. How can you, how, because yeah, I've, I've got an email saying, oh, just wait, you're going to see the takedown of the Clintons via Robert Mueller. Mm-hmm. No, we're not. Mm-mm. And this is not 3D chess. It's not that hard. These are mafia tactics. That's just, are you, do, do you agree? Oh, absolutely. I agree. And it is, you know, I, I People throwing different theories out there about, you know, these sealed indictments and Robert Mueller being on the side of Trump and working with Trump to drain the swamp, as people put it. It's just, 
wishful thinking. It really was. And uh, we said this, you know, a week ago, two weeks ago, to those people who were, you know, promoting this idea that Mueller was going to somehow indict the Podestas and, uh, you know, have some investigation into Uranium One. That is never going to happen. You know, I'll say this, though. If a Podesta was indicted, I do believe that that would serve only one purpose, and that purpose would be to use that, use the, um, maybe leverage, but mm-hmm. make it appear that, that the entire process was, uh, apolitical, yeah. right, unbiased. But, and, but see, see I don't think that's going to happen with Podestas because what they did was, uh, the same thing that Manafort is charged with, the Podesta lobbying group was guilty of. But they were told, given a heads up to go back and, and f- uh, fix their paperwork in August, uh, right. before the indictments right. on Manafort came. And then you had Tony Podesta step down, probably as a way to kind of uh, get out of the spotlight. And since then, the Podesta firm has been dissolved and a new one's being opened in, under another name. But I think all that was done for the purposes of not having to bring charges against them. Hmm. But... You know, many people out there are still talking about the possibility that these sealed indictments and and uh, there are things going on behind the scenes, like you said, like the five D chess. We want to believe it, but no, there's nothing no. to substantiate it. There's not even indications that this is ongoing. Jeff Sessions is very disappointing, in my opinion. The way I, I he, agree, and it it yeah. seems weak. He's always on the defensive. He's never it. But a listener who I talked to earlier this week believed that the Clinton or um, somebody on the left had something over Jeff Sessions, and I would agree with that. Uh, or he's just he just doesn't have the stones to be the Attorney General. I agree with you on that, and I was willing to give Jeff Sessions the benefit of the doubt, and th- I was, in fact, I'm, I I probably had said this: give him a chance, let him do the job, let him depoliticize the agency. But now, given everything that we've seen, and now that the that the the, the one issue, considering that the Department of Justice leaked or otherwise facilitated or permitted the the leaking to Reuters of the FBI informant's name. Um, that to me that's okay, now that's the deal breaker. And and Sessions testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week saying that, well, the weight of evidence by this FBI informant would not warrant the special counsel. Now I could see that again, given the if, if the Department of Justice was working the way it should. So now I'm saying, okay, it's a new game, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Sessions has is is gone well beyond the uh, the doubt. I believe that Sessions is either compromised, as you say, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Or, or just simply working on behalf of the deep state. I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I'd like to believe otherwise, but I can't. There's no evidence to support the, um, the fact that he's actually wearing a white hat. And if we're wrong, we'll be the first ones to come out and apologize. I'd say we were wrong, but yeah. it just doesn't, it just, the indications aren't that this is somehow going to turn around and, and bring 
um, charges and investigations to the DNC, to Hillary Clinton, to Mueller, to Uranium One. It's just not there. Hopefully, uh, the new information about the FBI undercover informant and his videotapes will lead to a, a further of investigations on the Uranium One deal. But still, even then, I don't see it. We have this whole, uh, you know, media, pol- politics, people in the tops of business, and all this big cabal of people who control just about everything that we see on our TV, here on the radio. And these people are, they have this anti-Trump, anti-American liberal mindset and they're going to protect their own we detailed stories yesterday on the daily show about the media bragging bragging about not covering uranium one and covering it up during the election cycle last year they said uh, katie Turr was one of those she said i purposely we purposely didn't cover it to keep it out of the headlines and you know you see these just constantly this is what is the media is so controlled this is why it's so important that people like sean hannity who are in the mainstream media continue to tell the truth about these uh, scandals and, and uh, tell the truth about what is going on inside of Washington and inside of the mainstream media. And it's so frustrating when we see, you know, he's really the only voice. You have Laura Ingram yeah. and Tucker, Car- Tucker Carlson who've been doing a good job. And I, I was saying this off air, I watched a, an episode of Laura Ingram this week, and I thought it was a really good show. I'm probably gonna to start recording. Yeah, it and yeah I'll, I'll record some pieces of them. I like listening to the radio. Yeah, actually, um, our DVR is filled with, um, yeah, every every everybody from Hannity to Ingram to uh, to Tucker Carlson to Rachel Maddow. Yeah, yeah, I know, it's tough, but someone's got to do it. And um, um, Brian Williams on. Uh, so it's it's you know on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, well, you were you were mentioning something about Kathy Griffin. Yeah, I'm <laughs> not going to say it on I was in my office. I I, I hear. I'll tell you off or what I said. Uh, well, I heard what you said, but what was the catalyst for your comments? Oh, she's in the news again about uh, her replacement at CNN on the New Year's Eve uh, segment. Her yes, name is yes. Andy Cohen, and she was she she created a storm on social media trying to spread some story about him that kind of backfired on her but she looks so unhinged and well, she something's is, wrong with her There's something, yeah. I mean, she looks sick she doesn't look healthy and with that haircut yeah. we were talking about uh that's a haircut Lord didn't the, she Lord of the Rings Lord of the Rings the backstory uh, somebody said that she cut her hair for, in support of a uh, relative who had cancer I don't well if that's the case okay I, I can appreciate that but yeah you know, wow. Well, coming back on the other side with Alicia Powell, World Net Daily author, journalist, uh, extremely, extremely uh, fascinating journalist. Coming right back. Welcome back to this edition of the Hagman Report for this Friday edition. Actually, again, uh, program just uh, as it unfolds, we'll have uh, just a tremendous amount. We're going to be covering a lot of topics, a lot of information. Hour two. Who's going to join us? 
We're going to be talking about Las Vegas, among other things. That kind of has fallen off the radar. Alicia Powell is going to be joining us here momentarily. Of course, she's a WND staff writer based in Washington and has written some tremendous columns, investigative columns over the last couple of weeks, including Donna Brazil under oath on Seth Rich killing. I think that was the... The one that caught my attention the most. We're going to kind of quiz her on that and find out what she knows about that. And don't forget, we cannot forget, I don't believe, all of the, what I like to call hinge moments in history in, in recent times. All of these, these events from Las Vegas to the, to the church shooting to, um, to what happened in Manhattan to going back even to the election to, going back before the election and all of these events it seems like the the headlines what i was saying earlier is the headlines come so fast it's easy to lose sight of what's uh, what's going on by the way received a telephone message from greg jackson the author greg jackson and um he interviewed judge roy moore back a number of years ago in his book we won't be fooled again and for a couple of hours and I had to uh, take the book off the bookshelf and read that interview in fact I think Greg Jackson had lunch with Judge Roy Moore and his feelings on Judge Roy Moore are very strong so that's hopefully we can get him in and he can talk about that in a timely fashion but having said all of that one of the uh, investigative journalists that I follow with regularity and, and I have a lot of respect for and a lot of faith, a lot of trust in is Alicia Powell. And she is a World Net, uh, WND staff writer based in Washington, D.C. She's joining us now. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Well, uh, we, we so appreciate your time. You know, you've, you've done some fantastic, uh, investigative pieces for WND of late. Can, can we, can I start off and, and, because we, we have limited time here, I want to give you the floor. Um, I'd like to start off by asking you about the Seth Rich Donna Brazil issue, the, the column you wrote. I believe that was back in, um, or back last week, November 14th, or just a few days ago, actually. Um, November 14th. Can we start there and then work wherever you want to go? Well, we've, I've been, uh, investigating the Seth Rich case for many months, uh, very diligently since May. And, uh, for those of you who don't know who Seth Rich is, he worked in the Voter Analysis Division of the Democratic National Committee, and he was killed on July 10th of 2016 at the height of the president, 2016 presidential election. And uh, right after he was killed, WikiLeaks released the trove of emails from the DNC revealing that they were not only rigging the election against Bernie Sanders, but they were using uh, racist slurs against their against constituents and engaging in occultist behavior, spirit cooking with a, a Satanist leader, Marina Abramovic. So all of these incriminating emails were released just weeks after Seth Rich was killed, and he's believed to be the leaker of the emails. And Julian Assange himself has uh, basically insinuated in, a, in an interview you can find online that Rich was the leaker. So a Republican lobbyist and uh, an attorney named Jack Berkman, he has been uh, uh, trying to find out who killed Seth Rich. And 
lots of these corruption cases and these 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 things that are being overlooked by lawmakers or law enforcement. It seems to be attorneys like Berkman or, or the folks at Judicial Watch who are really the only ones who are holding who are finding out what the information that the public is eager to know about. So he filed a lawsuit against the DNC for rigging the election, demanding the release of the, the DNC server, which contains all the emails. And we can find out through this lawsuit if Seth Rich was the leaker, if they were actually, if this actually sees a day in court and it doesn't get dismissed before the uh, discovery phase of the lawsuit. Um, That'll be so, interesting. Okay. It, it would be interesting. Yeah. And, of course, uh, Alicia Powell has written about this in on the, her column at WND. Um, just fascinating to, to see how you've followed this for really from day one and reporting keep, and keeping people informed on this. Uh, what are your thoughts? Do you think this will see the light of day? The, the lawsuit and, and the, the discovery, do you think it will make it to that point? First, I'll add that Berkman amended his lawsuit this Tuesday, which is the most recent article you can find in WND about Seth Rich, to include, he amended his lawsuit to include Donna Brazil. Donna Brazil makes a ton of explosive accusations in her book about the DNC rigging the election, and she claims that she feared for her life in the days after Seth Rich was killed and that she was looking through her blinds in fear of her life. So now she's included in a lawsuit that that's uh, you know that's aiming to prosecute her, Hillary Clinton, and the DNC. Will it see the light of day? Well, we keep thinking, oh, geez, the Seth Rich story is growing cold. Mm. No one's caring about it anymore. There's no more information to pull, you know, to find out, to report on. I've gone to the neighborhood, spoken to the people in the community Seth Rich lived, and. You know, a, a lot of them are tight-lipped. A lot of them would tell me things that I couldn't report on that were suspicious. And what we know is that the FBI, Donna Brazil, uh, basically insinuates in her book that the FBI um, ruled out that Russia was involved. Yet the FBI, when we ask them if they're have been investigating Rich's case, they tell us that they 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 refer us back to the MPD, the Metropolitan Police Department. So what is it? Is the FBI investigating, or is this in the is is this the are the MP is the MPD following up, or are they 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 being warned by the Washington D.C. mayor to stand down? That's what the, the profiling project with with uh, Attorney right. Jack Berkman runs. Will this see the light of day? I think the public demand to find out what happened to Seth Rich is so strong, just as the public demand is strong to find out to hold to lock Hillary Clinton up. <laughs> And to uh, hold Democrats accountable. Every story that I've written about Seth Rich in the past, I don't know, six months, is the highest-ranking story uh, from from uh, at WND because people want to find the truth out in this corruption scandal. And it, we wouldn't someone like Hillary Clinton off him uh, for the, 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 revealing that. Not only, now, I don't think that they care so much. They, the, the, the DNC said in a lawsuit, in a, in a court hearing, so this is a second lawsuit filed against the DNC for rigging the election. So the DNC admitted in a court hearing in April with, with Elizabeth and Jared Beck that, so what if we, if we pick our candidates? There's nothing in our DNC charter that 
that prohibits us from picking our own candidates or rigging the election. They're not, huh. The Democratic National Committee is not concerned, or Hillary Clinton is not concerned that everyone knows they rigged the election. So what? What are you going to do about it? Democrats are going to vote for Clinton anyway. Um, and that's what Democrats would tell me during the race. Oh, we can't stand her, but we're going to hold our nose and we're going to vote for her. So what they do care about is stuff like Uranium One. And right. they, uh, they care about, okay, the, the, the big conspiracy of Pedogate that we're not allowed to talk about unless you want to be branded <laughs> fake news. Yet, if you do spend some time and you look up what spirit cooking means or what these FBI's alleged names for pizza and hot dogs means, where there's smoke, there's fire, it's not just random stuff in the emails that make, you know, these odd emails. So they care about covering all of their corruption scandals, and that corruption scandal is not rigging, just rigging the election. That's probably the least of what they care about, if they care at all. I mean, they blatantly had uh, primaries where they, 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 they had superdelegates determining that Clinton won the election. I mean, would win these primaries. Or they, 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 they'd have uh, coin tosses determine that she won some of these uh, primaries. So that, that, that's the least of what they're worried about. Interesting. Okay. And yeah. obviously, Clinton is obviously... Uh, fearful that there will be a special counsel to investigate the Uranium One deal because now she's coming out saying that the United States will be transformed into some sort of authoritarian government if they were to investigate Uranium One. I think she said that two days ago. She told uh, the liberal left-leaning website Mother Jones. That's right. Uh, and that's what the liberal talking points are now. That all um, the United States is turning into Russia yeah. if we dare investigate Clinton's corruption. It's it's amazing for me to watch this, and you've been on the, the on the front lines and the cutting edge of reporting from Pedagate Pizzagate, um, and that, that's when I kind of uh, you know t- took note of your your writing and your investigative research all the way through Seth Rich and, and beyond, or maybe Seth Rich first and then uh, Pizzagate and Pedagate and and forward. So. Do you okay? So, do you think uh, Hillary Clinton? Do, do you think that that a day of reckoning may be coming for her? Do you think, or do you think that she's above that and no one is really going to care? I think the main thing. Well, first of all, I haven't reported much in Pedogate. That is a conspiracy theory as of now. That, like I said, where there's smoke, there's fire. But there were undoubtedly emails about spirit cooking. Not much we know. Right. Will Clinton be held to be held accountable? Well, the most infuriating thing about the, the Russia probe and Uranium One and all of it is that Jeff Sessions, our Attorney General, has recused himself um, from all of these investigations and we're beholden to Robert Mueller and McCabe to who are in bed with the Democrat Party to bring accountability forth. We know we can't trust them. We know that they were the same people who were running the FBI when Uranium One dealings were ongoing, when Clinton was, they they, they let Clinton get away with jeopardizing national security with her private email server. We're trusting them, and they're, they're, they're investigating President Trump for a year already for allegedly rigging the election. Us conservatives know it's complete BS and it's ongoing and Democrat holdovers are still in charge. They're in charge of the FBI. They are in charge. They're in all forms of, in all parts of our government. And why? We don't know. 
Is it President Trump's fault? Is he not being aggressive enough in getting rid of these Obama holdovers who are obstructing him? We don't know. But well, if Jeff Sessions didn't recuse himself, we'd be looking at a whole different picture as far as Russia is concerned and as far as Hillary Clinton is concerned. I, I, I agree. Do you... And, and folks, our guest, our guest is Alicia Powell, uh, WND staff writer based in Washington, D.C. And you can follow her on Facebook, follow her on social networking, go to WND, read her fine, very fine investigative articles. They're very comprehensive. And, and her analysis is measured and very, very spot on in my view. Do you see, uh, do you believe, um, uh, do, do you think that a, a special prosecutor will be appointed? Do you think that Congress will demand it? Do you think that the American people will rise up? They've got enough information and, and enough spunk to get up and say, we want this special prosecutor for the Clinton crimes collectively? Or, or do you think that that's kind of a pipe dream? Well, Jeff Sessions testified before the House Judiciary Committee earlier this week, on Tuesday, I believe it was. And he basically kind of double spoke. Well, not exactly. He said that, he is not going to investigate it, but he will have uh, his deputy. He's going to find out if there's a if Clinton has reached the threshold of uh, warranting a special process, a special counsel. Um, so he's not going to do it, but he's going to find out maybe if it can be done, if it's warranted. Um, Trey Gowdy also said, following Sessions' testimony, that we don't need a special counsel to do it; we can do it. And, well, the demand is there. I right. think the demand is there on uh, the, the liberal and conservative side. Liberals, like I said, they can't stand Hillary. They couldn't stand her during the election. They're just, uh, they're partisan. They're, they're going to basically make their decision regardless to vote for a Democrat. But she should be held accountable, and I think the American people are eager to just, I, all, I think they're eager to, 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 to see her, her testify again to see Comey held accountable and um so, yeah, yeah I, I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, and, and this is a question. If you or I were talking on the phone right now off air, I'd ask you this question. And I've been asking a lot of journalists this question. In fact, I, I asked in the open air tonight. Do you think that the majority of the American people have all of the facts, all of the information about the Uranium One scandal or the crimes of Uranium One um, have all of the information about the email service. Do you think the American people have all of the facts? I'm not talking about the mainstream, you know, CNN version. I'm talking about the real, real facts. Do you, do you think that's that's out there enough, or do you think that the facts? Just curious. I mean, even as a journalist, as someone who follows the news diligently for a living, it's hard to get all the facts. Um, even members of Congress are. <laughs> are starving to get all the facts. Um, but our people, I think people need to be very diligent in finding out the truth. And, and, and it's hard nowadays when it, there's so many filters of propaganda. Uh, you can't find it out. You know, you can watch Fox News at 9 o'clock and listen to special report at Fox. But right. other than that, where else are we getting news from? Oh, from you. I mean, I, I gotta tell you, you're, you're, you're hot on the trail of a lot of things, and, and I read your, your investigative reports all the time, so there's one. <laughs> I mean, really, what's compelled me to leave being an artist behind and, and, and to be a journalist is not, it's, yes, I, I, um, 
I I want the truth out there, and I want to help people get the truth, understand the truth. But it's the, the democratic corruption and the propaganda that they've been able to inundate us with for decades. Because you know, just the, just not too long ago, there was just ABC, CBS, and NBC, and now we've got, got so many news sources um, to to get the truth out there and get the facts out there. So that's right. Um, that's true. Yeah, very true. Uh, Alicia, I want to be, I want to make sure that, that we cover as much as possible. Is there anything right now that, that's, uh, that you're working on that you think that, uh, that you want to talk about that, that, uh, aside from, you know, for example, the, the columns you've written, is there anything that's on your radar that, that you feel passionate about that you want to talk well, about? Yes. There's cool. something else that I've learned about recently, the threat of EMP, an electromagnetic pulse attack. And right now, the United States is completely vulnerable to our electric grid map, just our electricity just being attacked, our electric grid being attacked um, by North Korea or Russia or Iran. It doesn't take a nuclear weapon for us to be in a catastrophic, to face catastrophe. Um, I've spoken with a nuclear scientist named Vincent Pry, Dr. Vincent Pry, who was on the EMP commission. The EMP commission was terminated in September 30th. Um, why? For no good reason. He s- explains that it's because Obama holdovers are basically intent on uh, disarming the United States because we're bad and we're imperialistic and uh, we shouldn't. No, no one should have nuclear weapons. Well, if an EMP attack hit us tomorrow. How long would we be able to, well, how long would we be able to survive in society without electricity? Our, 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 the way that we get food, the, the way that we get water that's clean enough to drink is all based on us having electricity right now. Mm-hmm. And we are vulnerable to that attack. And, uh, the people from the former EMP commission are, are urgently trying to warn the White House that this is an imminent threat. The same time that the EMP, EMP commission was terminated, North Korea was threatening us with a, a EMP attack. So, this is, my computer died. Yeah, Alicia, I don't know if uh, North Korea is capable of actually pulling that off, but we've been studying the EMP threat for years and one of the more frightening statistics about that is if there is an EMP that were to take the power grid of the country down, you would have 90, within one year, 90% of the population would be dead. And that's a very real threat, not just from uh, attacks from other countries, also cyber hacking as well as natural disasters as a way of uh, possibly bringing that about. And it is a, a very real threat. Alicia, I want to get your opinion. Oh, we lost Alicia, her computer. That's what she said. Her computer. computer she got hit by a mini EMP there. <laughs> yeah. Directed. You know, Lisa Powell, and I've got to say this. I've got a lot of respect for her as a journalist and her mm-hmm. investigative reports. Um, and she does a lot of her own, well, all of her own footwork. I, I guess she was uh, at the New Bible Museum today in Washington. Yeah, yeah. Which, okay. I wanted to ask her about that. Yeah. Because well, there's an article up here about just about that, um, which is pretty interesting. CBS, NBC... Hype cloud of suspicion over Museum of the Bible. Listen to the arguments that they make. Oh, uh, man. Coming up go. on CBS this yeah. morning, 
they say that this museum is generating some controversy because it's just a few blocks from the U.S. Capitol, and the conservative <laughs> Christian family-run Hobby Lobby is the biggest donor. But what was their biggest beef? This is exactly what they said. The U.S. Capitol is over your shoulder. Some people have said the goal here is to knock down that wall between church and state. Right. By proximity of this Bible museum to the Capitol. Yep. Other, which is uh, just r- ridiculous. The other news outlet said that some critics on the left say this museum will be full of evangelical propaganda. That's offensive. <laughs> just hearing that is offensive to me. And I think it should offend every Christian out there. Why is it so close to centers of American government and culture? Right. My goodness, these people are, are delusional. They are mentally handicapped. Well, if we don't, if we don't get Alicia back, make sure that you check out her work on the Bible museum. I, I think that that's... I don't know if she's written it yet, but that's what she was working on. Well, today. okay, when it comes out. There, yeah. There, when it comes out. Make sure you check it out because, you know, and she's right on the EMP, very correct on the EMP. And Joe, you, you made yeah. a statement where, oh, great, we have her back. Alicia, thanks for coming back. I apologize. No I've been at the museum. Of, I, I seem to have technical difficulties every time we speak. Uh, <laughs> I've been at the Museum of the Bible um, all day today, running around with my computer and my cell phone and, and getting the story on verifying whether Jesus is present in the Museum of the Bible. According to the Washington Post and the Christian Broadcasting Network, there is no Jesus in the uh Museum of the Bible. So we went. I went today to find out if that's true or not. And I gotta say, it's just an exquisite museum. Um, we're very fortunate to have a museum of the Bible. And whether your whatever your religious beliefs are, it's a uh, it's it's an important thing to have in society, and it's it's unprecedented. There's um, a there historical is Jesus element. In the museum, though. Good. It's good. not enough. Good to know. It's not like Passion of the Christ. Um, you okay. won't see blood and you won't see Jesus bearing the cross, um, like you would in, you know, it's not realistic enough, realistically depicted, but it's beautiful and it's worth checking out. I'm wow. grateful to have God today. When, when can we expect your article on that? Not that we're... Sunday. Sunday. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. yeah, we'll definitely look out for coverage on the, on the museum where they said that uh, it's so close to the capital that um, they are trying to blur the lines between church and state. Uh, oh, and then they have a problem with Hobby Lobby being one of the bigger donors or the biggest donor to that museum. And then they called it Christian propaganda or evangelical well, of propaganda. Course, of course, you can expect secularized <laughs> secular <laughs> media who we can expect that from the left. Yes, absolutely. Alicia, in the last few minutes we have, I want to get your opinion on this Judge Roy Moore story that's been ongoing for the last week. Now a party. We have these uh, women accusing him of of different things, the most explosive accusation being what the um, Mrs. Nelson brought against them, but there's some questions... uh, about the her credibility because apparently she was in his courtroom in 1999 as uh, looking over her divorce proceedings the signature in the yearbook is is uh, up in some controversy what do you do you think this was a political hit job or do you think there's some truth to these allegations both it's absolutely a political hit job and there's obviously based on the judge's testimony just on that Sean Hannity interview he he did have a thing for young girls but first off 
I mean, I got to say, to be completely honest, I've been getting hit on by grown men since I was 13, 14 years old. If you just walk down the street in Manhattan, it's not something that, unfortunately, it's a pretty normal thing. So I think it's just, there should be a window. If you're gonna, if you're gonna make allegations against someone, why wait 30, 40 years? That's the question we all, we're all asking. Mm -hmm. Okay? 30 or 40 years, that's a political hit job. You haven't recovered, you have four decades to come out and make these allegations, but you're waiting a month before this election? It's just infuriating. I think if you have any integrity, you need to stand up for yourself and not bandwagon Literally, it's just, me too, me too, Bill Cosby raped me. <laughs> me too, me too, Bill O'Reilly. Oh, yeah, he said I was wearing a short skirt and that I was beautiful. Okay, well, I mean, let's just face it. Men hit on women. Some women look like they're 20 years old when they're 14, and that's not to justify what Warren Moore did. The most serious allegation is with Lake Horfman, who was apparently 14 years old, and he... uh spoke with her mother when she was in a court in a, in a divorce hearing and asked if he can watch her then he went to her house and then they went on a date and he drove her back to his house in the forest and they t- he touched he, he got stripped down in his underwear so we, we've heard the allegation right but Lake Horfman you're waiting to now to speak out about that really I mean and yeah. right now we're we're inundated with all of these allegations of sexual assault and sexual harassment from Hollywood, from Democrats and now Franklin Republicans, but Alicia, women have Alicia, women I, need to have more integrity. I, I, and, I, and so do men. I love <laughs> I love your approach on this. And my wife and I would agree with you 100%. I think you're, we're at the end of the segment, which is why I had to. It's too late to come forth with 40 year old allegations. Mm-hmm. Period. And you know what, Elisa, you said it, you said it right. You know, you're not a professional. Right. We victim. don't know enough about Roy Moore. We're bandwagoning right. for him because we love Donald Trump and he represents the anti establishment right. movement. But do we really know the guy? No. That's no. right. At least not nationally. That's right. Elisa, thank you so much for your gift of time tonight. I know you're a busy lady. We're going to keep following you. God bless you. Stay safe out there, okay? Thank you. All right. That was Elisa Powell from WND, staff writer. Follow her on Facebook and social networking. We're right back. Network break. edition of the Hagman Report. I want to mention that portion of the nice broadcast brought to you by Ready Made Resources. You know, I'll tell you something. Uh, you heard Alicia Powell talk about EMP, the EMP concerns, not new. Uh, I'll tell you that. How prepared are you? How prepared can you be? I think so. Folks, ReadyMadeResources.com Bob Griswold That's the one-stop shop for everything you need to be prepared ReadyMadeResources.com And one of the very uh, very high market high demand uh, actually a couple areas and that's the night vision equipment which I like to call the great equalizer against you know the mobs out there and essential for security and also the communications ham radio for example. And the more I learn about ham radio, the more I like it. So, look, whether it is storable food, long-term storable food, water purification, or whatever whatever it might be, 
ready-made resources. Go there. Also, mention that you heard this endorsement on the Hagman Report, ready-made resources. You can call Bob Griswold at 800-627-3809 or just go to readymaderesources.com. And again, uh, make sure you mention Hagman. Go ahead. Go to HagmanReport.com and check out Peter Chowka's new oh, article, yes. Watch Out. All is not what you see in the Al Franken story. There he details an interview which uh, CNN conducted with the journalist uh, Leanne Tweeden, and he details the story of the Al Franken and how there's more to the story. I have not read the whole article, uh, but absolutely will. That's on HagmanReport.com, and this is um, you know we we continue to see the 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 tale of the hypocrisy of the media. We have all these media outlets that are um, you know basically protecting or. or Saying Al Franken was a mock groping, it was a joke, it, you know, downplaying it. Well, they turn around uh, can, and bash I can, Trump. I can see that uh, in, I can in a sense, the, okay, the because argument. of Franken. Yeah, I understand the argument too, but but you know, in well, doesn't make it right. No, no, no. it's just uh, the you know, the double standards that's right. that we see in the media, and it. It's just going to continue. There's no, there's no end in sight. Also on Hag. Well, wait a second. I, I do want the uh, the names in, uh, of all the settlements that our tax dollars paid for from congressmen. I want, I want, I want that. I want complete transparency and exposure. I want to know who. I want to know how much. Uh, and, and I'm referring to the report that how, how many million millions upon millions of dollars in settlements were paid out by members of seventeen Congress. million dollars over two hundred and sixty settlements. So, and that stretches from 1997 to 2017. So far this year, there have been eight or name, nine name them and shame them. in Congress paying out almost a million dollars. And you got Senator Bob Menendez, of course, that uh, uh, trial got, well, that was a hung jury. Gee, mistrial. Or mistrial. By it, because of a hung jury. Mm-hmm. Big surprise there. Um, now, do, do you know if they're going to, are they going to uh, refile the or are They, they haven't go said yet. No. Okay. Uh, that, that's always a concern. Especially given the venue, uh, where it's being held, you know, it's just, it's just kind of a, when you deal with, with the court system. But I do hope they will pursue that. Now, our, our guest right now is Doug Papa. If you've never heard of this man, uh, his resume is stellar. He is a U.S. Army military police veteran. He's a former law enforcement officer, a criminal investigator, and private sector security and investigations management professional with over 40 years of experience, including including work as the director of security for the Las Vegas Riviera Casino, where he exposed wrongdoing in 1986. He was awarded uh, the Criminal Investigative of the Year designation by the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office in Virginia for his undercover work in narcotics enforcement, 91, and again in 92. Uh, Mr. Papa testified under oath that exculpatory evidence was withheld from the defense by the prosecutor and sheriff's office officials during the 1988 trial of a man uh, accused of attempted murder of his wife that led to his conviction. So you, you've got to look at this and, wow, okay. Um, as a result, Mr. Of Mr. Papa's testimony, by the way, the man was ordered released from prison, given a new trial in 1992, and found not guilty. So, both sides of the spectrum here. Now, Mr. Papa became the subject of a local and national news media attention, which led to the demise of his 12-year police career. 
After losing his job, by the way, at the request of the FBI, Mr. Papa infiltrated in an undercover capacity a group of men who were plotting the kidnapping of a DuPont chemical fortune heir and his wife in 1992. His stories have been featured on Inside Edition, A Current Affair, CBS News Street Stories with Ed Bradley. So, I mean, you, you get in the picture here? He spent 20 years in the hotel casino business as the director. He writes for the Baltimore Post Examiner. Now, we asked him to come on to talk about Las Vegas, about the um, about the security, about the whole situation with Las Vegas. However, full stop at the moment. We just found out today, when exclusives are not so exclusive, the Sylvester Stallone sex scandal story that the UK Mail Online forgot to attribute properly. It, the exclusive how Sylvester Stallone was accused of sexually assaulting a 16-year-old uh, fan Police report reveals girl claim star made her give him his bodyguard moral sex, threatened that they would beat her head in if she ever told. This can be found on the Daily Mail. But here's the key. Daily Mail would not have a story if it were not for Doug Papa. Daily Mail never attributed the information to Doug Papa, who was the originator of what you're hearing and what you're seeing in the mainstream media. My word. With that, we want to welcome Doug Papa to the program. Doug, thanks for joining us. Good evening, gentlemen. Nice to be with you. Can you hear me okay? We can. We can hear you. We can see you. You're, you're looking good, sounding good. Uh, yeah, what's up with this? Uh, you, so you did the legwork. You did the, 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 the revelation. You, you exposed this. You were behind, you were, you were the guy behind Stallone's stuff, right, and and, and never got. Uh, I mean, so help me out. Start there. What what happened? In 2014, I got a lot of law enforcement friends retired. Um, I met thousands of cops over the years of my career, and then also in the law enforcement industry, and then uh, excuse me, in the security industry, and, and in law enforcement. Um, I was talking to a couple of cops retired from California. This was in late 2014. And they were telling me some stories. He said, you know, Sylvester Sloan is not the person people think he is. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to use cuss words on the show, but for lack of better words, he's not a, he's not a good human. Alleged sexual violations with, um, women and specifically some young girls. So they told me a couple of stories. Couldn't, you know, verify anything. So what I did was towards the end of 2014, I went on the internet and I just started researching his history. And, um, and I found some stuff that was questionable, um, arrest for steroid possession in Australia, some allegations from some other women referenced that, um, sexual misconduct and stuff like that. I think one was a model in 2001 that said he ripped her clothes off and pushed her up against the wall in the gym. And this was all stuff that was coming off, I call white intelligence. It's coming off the, uh, the internet and different news agencies and stuff that came out. So, um, started compiling all this stuff. And through the research, I saw that in 2013, the New York Post, page six, the section of the New York Post, published a story that, um, according to them, there were allegations that he molested his half-sister. Her name was Tony Ann Felitti. She was an actress, um, really good-looking woman, um, that he allegedly molested her while she was a kid for a couple of years. 
And they had a document and somebody came forward, but they didn't release who came forward. They didn't release a document, but they said there was some type of trial, excuse me, um, civil papers that were filed and a lawsuit. So I, I compiled all that stuff and I started writing the story. It was rather lengthy. And then I remembered an incident that happened 25 years prior. When I came to Las Vegas, the first place I worked when I came here, once I lost my job in the police department after the undercover investigation was done with the FBI, I spent about a year out in Colorado while they were flying me back to testify in the federal trial for the conspirators of the kidnapping case. So anyway, I made it out to Las Vegas. Um, I opened up the MGM Grand in 1993, started out as a security officer, and then went to investigations pretty fast. Um, some of the guys I worked with were retired police officers, some of them from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Anyway, long story short, we had all the Tyson fights back in the 90s was scheduled at the Grand Garden Arena, which was part of the MGM Grand. So when the celebrities came in, the investigators were always assigned to some of the higher profile celebrities as, you know, as bodyguards to be with them, you know, while they're going to the fights. And um, so anyway, Dave Austin was the director of security, executive director of security, and actually vice president, uh, executive vice president of security and surveillance. He passed away a few years ago from cancer, a really nice gentleman. So he came in, he started giving the investigators their, their jobs, and he says, Doug, you're going to be with uh, Drew Barrymore. Stay with her because she doesn't like when photographers put um, cameras in her face. So sit with her in the box and make sure she's okay. And he was canning out some other assignments. So goes to this one guy, John, who's a retired Metro officer out here. And he says, John, you're going to be with Sylvester Stallone. Now I'm going to, I'm going to leave all the cuss words out because I know we're on the air. <laughs> right. So for lack of, for lack of better words, John said, I won't, I wouldn't walk Sylvester Stallone that blank to the toilet. Mm. Get somebody else. So Dave looked at him. We all looked at him like, you know, what's going on? So, um, Dave says, excuse me. He goes, I wouldn't walk him and bodyguard him anywhere. And he was pretty descriptive in his language. So Dave just looked and he said, okay, he gave it to another investigator. John got some other celebrity. Anyway, the fights came and went. And then the following week, I was in the same role in the same office in investigations. John was on the end. So it was nobody in there. It was me and him. And I said, um, I said, John, what happened Saturday night? Why didn't you want to, you know, bodyguard Stallone and be with them? So of course, you know, a lot of expletives and cuss words and stuff like that. And basically what he said was, you know, I, I wouldn't go near this guy. I wouldn't bodyguard him. He's basically, for lack of better words, a piece of crap. He should be in prison. He should be a convicted sex offender. So he goes on, and I said, what are you talking about? So he says, you know, before I retired, I was the supervisor in the sexual assault detail at the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I said, no, you talked about it. So I said, what's going on? He says, well, now now he's telling me, this is the late 90s, okay, when he's telling me this. And um, he says, um, before I retired, 85 or 86, he said, um, Stallone was making a movie at the Las Vegas Hilton. It's now called the Westgate Hotel, but back then it was the Hilton. And there's this 15, 16-year-old girl who was a fan. Anyway, he makes contact with her. They get her up to the room, him and his bodyguard. Um, now I know the bodyguard's name was Michael DeLuca. Back then, he I think he said the last name, DeLuca. And I said, what happened? He says they uh, they had group sex with her, oral sex. He masturbated in front of her on the floor, on the wall. And and I'm listening to this, and I'm saying, Stallone? He goes, yeah. And I said, what happened? He says, well, um, police came out. They did an investigation, and then it got assigned to the sexual assault detail, and detectives were assigned. They interviewed the girl. The girl was, you know, traumatic, nervous. She didn't want to press charges. She was scared. So there was no prosecution. And um, he said, but the sheriff at the time was John Moran. 
John Moran passed away years ago. He was a sheriff at the time that this happened. And he said Moran was so ticked off that there was going to be no charges pressed that when Stallone came in town to do the movie, his bodyguard, Michael DeLuca, applied for a temporary concealed weapons permit from the sheriff from Clark County. And the sheriff told the cops, the detective, he says, you go down to the Hilton and you get that Ellie Wall. I'm not going to cuss tonight. He says, uh, you go back and get, go back and get that permit and pull it and tell them that we ever catch him or any of these people in Clark County carrying a concealed weapon, uh, they're going to get locked up. So they went down and they did it. And, and now he's telling me the story and I'm looking at him and, you know, I always liked Stallone. I liked his movies, you know, years ago. And then he tells me, he goes, you know, Doug, since that happened, I never watched another Sylvester Stallone movie. I can't even stand to see his face on television. And, um, I said, man, I just couldn't believe it. So anyway, came and went. A couple days later, I'm sitting in the office and he comes in with his briefcase and he opens up the briefcase and he throws down this 12 page police report, which is a copy of what's floating around on the internet. And he says, read it, but don't copy it. And I'm going to be sitting over there. So I read it, 12 pages, and it's even more graphic than what he described. And I just can't believe it. And it's got Sylvester Stallone named down as a suspect, Michael DeLuca. And I'm just reading this. And I said, how the hell did this never hit the press? He says, well, the girl didn't press charges. And, um, you know, it looked like the original report. And he says, it is the original report. Wow. I says, well, why do you have it? And he says, because when it was all over with, the sheriff said, being that it was Stallone, he was a present charges, don't put it into the system or something like that. Do what you want with it. So just to cover his butt, he kept it all those years. So I read it, and now I'm like, just I just couldn't believe it. So I read it, I gave it back to him. That was the end of that. So that explained why he didn't like Sylvester Stallone. Now, like I said, that was 25 years ago. I was in the late 90s. So sure. Sure. going back to the story from 2014, compiled all the stuff off the internet about him, and I said, I'll do a story. Then I remembered... You know, what John had told me 25 years ago. So I called him up and I said, uh, hey, John, are you aware? You know, I talk fast sometimes. I said, are you aware that less than a year after Stallone, Sylvester Stallone, you know, when we worked at the MGM and he showed me the report, he goes, yeah. He goes, what's up? I said, do you know less than a year after that incident with this 15, 16 year old girl, his sister filed, uh, civil, a civil case against, civil charges against him. And the whole thing was covered up. He paid millions of dollars, supposedly, because she was being molested by him while she was growing up. And he just went nuts. And he says, no, I never heard of that. He says, so what's going on? I says, well, I'm, you know, I write for the Baltimore Post Examiner sometimes, and I'm writing the story about Sloan, and I want to put the paragraph. Now, I didn't have the report at this time. So I said, I want to put the last paragraph in and mention the incident of the Las Vegas Hilton. So I did. It was a couple of sentences. And he said, go ahead, you know, if anybody gives any flack, I'll back you up because, you know, it happened and I got the report and all this. So I said, you have the report? He says, yes, but I don't know where it was. So that's, that's, um, now I think it was the end of 2014. The story came out, I think in January or February of 2015. So they published a story and it was titled, did Sylvester Stallone molest his half sister? Okay. So that came out. And of course, when I write stories, I write a lot of stories about police corruption and stuff that, you know, really from my heart that concerns me. So, you know, I get a lot of hate mail. I get, you know, emails from people, conspiracy theorists. I kind of ignore all that stuff. But there was a couple of people that write me and one or two in particular appeared. They were genuine and they said that they had information that nobody else has got and it never came out in the press. So end up making contact with the sources, the confidential sources, and then one of them told me that they have the actual sealed documents 
going back 30, uh, 30 years to 87 because the whole thing was sealed and they said he paid her off $2 million plus 66, I think it was $66,000 and some change every month for the rest of her life plus, a, plus every year she'll get $50,000 for medical and psychological, uh, bills and stuff like that. And they said this never came out when the post, when the New York Post did the story. They don't have these documents. So, um, long story short, end up making a telephone conversation, put me in touch with some other people. Anyway, they FedExed me all the documents and I looked at it and verified they were genuine. And they also had a copy of the two million, actual two million dollar check that was made out to Tony and Felitti, which was his half sister from the attorney. Wow. So, yeah, I, I started writing the same, I pulled the paper up, I said, you ain't gonna believe what I got, I got all this stuff. Doing more research and talking to the sources, they told me, do you know that Sylvester Stallone's, this is just unbelievable, to this day this blows my mind. Do you know that Sylvester Stallone's stepdad, who married his mother, Jackie Stallone, I think in the late 80s, is a medical doctor? I said, no, I'm not aware of it. These are my sources telling me. And they said, do you know he was, a, he was charged with murdering his Dead wife, now dead wife. Wow. No, well, well, this gets this gets a bit bad. So, I get more documents from them. I got documents from um, the California Board of Medicine. I tracked all the stuff down, and it, it's a pretty lengthy story. So, in a nutshell, what happened was, and I put this in the story, it's it, some period of time. I think it was the late '80s. His name is Dr. Michael Levine, if I remember correctly. Still married, I believe, and still a practicing medical doctor, which just blows my. I just can't Whoa. believe it. Well, anyway. Well, anyway, what happened was um, he was charged with murder for giving um, inordinate amounts of Demerol to his wife, and she died. They did an autopsy. They charged him with murder. They charged his brother, I don't remember his name, who's another doctor, who falsified the death certificate, saying she died from some coronary or seizure when she actually died from the overdose. And I guess when they did the autopsy, and this is all in my story. I had it all documented, and I got all the documents. And um, I guess when they did the autopsy, now I don't have any notes in front of me. I, I talk right what's in my memory. Sure. And I believe it was 24 to 48 times the normal prescribed amount that a doctor would prescribe to a patient for Demerol. So they charged him with murder. Okay. And they charged the brother with accessory because he falsified the death certificate and covered up actually the reason why she died. All well and fine. Now you would think that the guy would have been in jail for many years, and he would have lost his medical license. Yep. Well, it didn't, it didn't happen like that. They, he ends up pleading to involuntary manslaughter. I believe he got five years probation. The California Board of Medicine, if I remember correctly, pulled his medical license for a couple of months. Then they gave it back to him. But what even makes it worse is during this investigation with the California Board of Medicine, I guess he had applied to renew his DEA. It's called a CSA certificate or something, so he can prescribe, you know, the DEA controls substances right. to patients. Right. And they found out that when he applied, one of the questions was asked, did you ever um, falsify documents or something like that? And I guess he put no. He put yes on part of it, no on the other. And they actually found out that through the investigation, this is all my story, that what he did lie because what what he lied about was that he falsified the report to the DEA for the for the reapplication, the way I understand it, because when he um, when he was given his wife these Demerol pills, he forged he put somebody else's name down as the patient, 
and they found out that the name, and I don't remember, the name is in my story, but I don't remember it offhand. So basically was, instead of filling prescriptions out, because there's so many of them for his wife, he makes up this guy's name, I think, I think it was Robert Kaufman, it was just a phony name. Sure. Well, they found out that that's all fictitious and false, so he was charged with that also, uh, you know, including with the murder charge. And um, then the address he put down for this guy Kaufman, and I remember this from memory, was a a, a really high-priced home in Beverly Hills that um, was abandoned for years. So that was all part of the investigation. So they end up charging with that, you know, the fictitious stuff. So they pulled his license, I believe, for a couple of months. I don't believe he spent any time in jail. They gave him five years probation. He got his medical license back, and he's still to this day a practicing medical doctor. And I even put in my story when I wrote it. I just couldn't believe it. I just, I just don't understand how you go from a murder charge for murdering your wife by giving her all this Demerol, and then you, they, they take a plea bargain for an involuntary manslaughter, and I think he was on five years probation. Well, anyway, they pulled his license for a couple of months, and he gets the license back. So that's part of the second story. And I think the second story, when the paper published it, they published a copy of the $2 million check with Stallone's face neck to it. And I think the title of the story was um, Sylvester Stallone's Hush Money Leads Unanswered Questions. So when I got all these documents, um, that the actual they were all supposed to be sealed. And part of the sealing of the documents and her getting all this money was that there were supposed cassette tapes that came out of a, a telephone answering machine right when she started accusing him of molesting her and raping her and all this when she was a kid. And allegedly on the tapes are Jackie Stallone and Frank Stallone, his brother, talking about how they're going to fix the problem with Tony Anfalini. And part of the settlement that was sealed, and I had all the records, I put this in my story, was that those tapes were supposed to be turned over. Now, my sources told me the tapes were turned over, but there's still copies out there. And I got an idea, and I can mention the name of who still has them. So, you know, since then, even the other day, someone called me up and said, hey, we're still working on tapes. So, but you give me the tapes, we'll have it analyzed to see who the voices are, and, and we'll publish it. So those tapes are still floating around. Now, one of my sources um, told me that those tapes exist because Mark Geragos, the attorney from California, um, was Tony Anfalides, Sylvester Sloan's half-sister, the one they alleged did the, the sexual assaults on. Um, he was her attorney, and he actually listened to some of those tapes. How he got the tapes and who gave them to him, I don't know, but my sources when I talked to him said that Mark Derrigos actually listened to those tapes. And what I was told over the years since I wrote those stories, that these allegations about his sister and there's also other allegations that I'm not going to mention names with other mis sexual misconduct with other women is the biggest open secret secret in Hollywood that what he's done over the years everybody knows about and nobody really cares. They don't talk. It's like a secret that's not really a secret. So um, I wrote the story. I wrote the second story and it came out. And then uh, some of the sources were talking to me and, and telling me because they're close to, you know, people in his family and stuff that he was really upset about the stories and he started blaming family members that they were the ones releasing the information to me and um, I guess he started blaming Tony Anfalidi's son Ed Felidi he was in his 20s I think he's a young you know, in his 20s today somewhere around there um, because after the post six excuse me the page six story in the New York Times came out 
Ed Felitti, who's the son of his half-sister, told the press that up until the time she died on a deathbed, he said, my uncle Sylvester Stallone molested my sister when she was a kid. The, the son said that on the record, okay? My sources were telling me then the night, you know, that was in 2013. Now, my stories come out three years later, and from what I'm hearing, him and his brother are all upset about it. They're trying to find out who's releasing documents to me, and they suppose he started threatening Ed. They want Ed to change his story and stop talking about what he's telling them, that, you know, he molested his sister. And so that's, that's what was going on after I wrote the story. And there was a lot of drama, and there's a lot of other stuff going on that I can't talk about it because there may be another story down the road. Um, and, and I got to protect confidential sources sure. and stuff like that. So anyway, wow. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, no, no. It, it, did Stallone ever contact you and and tell you to stop it, or did he have any contact with you at all during this process? No. The matter of fact, the paper thought that they would get some type of contact either from him or not from him, from his attorney or something. Now, every story I wrote, his attorney. Back 30 years ago was Martin Singer, and my contacts are telling me he was still Martin Singer. The, he's a high-profile attorney, and I tried to make contact with Mr. Singer. I called up, talked to the secretary, told him I was writing the story, and he never called me back. So I know personally from what sources close to the family are telling me that, regardless of what he said the other day about he, the first time he heard about the story with the, the the story I wrote last year, Sylvester Sloan is fine. I know from my source telling me is fully aware of who I am and all these stories that I've written on him. I wrote five stories on him so far, including the one that was yesterday. So anyway... Where can people find these stories, too, uh, that you've written, just to be clear? Okay, if you go to the Baltimore Post-Examiner website, Baltimore Post-Examiner, okay. it's, it's a newspaper, the online paper, and you go to columnists, the little tab up at the top, and you push it down, you'll see Doug Papa. You'll see, I wrote about 120 stories so far since the two years when I started writing for them on different things. You'll see all the stories, and you can just keep going back on older, newer, and you could pull all of them up. Um, the Sylvester Stallone stories, like I said, the first one was, did Sylvester Stallone molest his half-sister? The follow-up with all the other information that I got was Sylvester Stallone hush money, these unanswered questions. Then I wrote another story. Um, it was titled, Sylvester Stallone um, is, a, is a gun-toting hypocrite, and how that story came. No, it's, that's not funny. No, I mean, I, I, how that's. I, I just no, I, I just love your title. Or the, that's your. Well, I don't make the. I, I do bad titles when I write the story. The paper always changes them because they, they're the experts. <laughs> right. Okay? So I write the story. They, they make up good titles. So that story with the Sylvester Stallone is a gun-toting hypocrite. That came around because, um, you know, I'm pro Second Amendment. You sure. Know, I'm not a fanatic about it, but I own guns. I've been, you know, around guns all my life. So I started doing more research and found out that Sylvester Stallone, for 30 years, is one of the biggest anti Second Amendment and, and, and advocates of gun control in Hollywood. I mean, he, he's to the extreme, to the point where he's been on the record, and this is in my story about that, where he said that the Second Amendment should be repealed. No American citizen should possess handguns, and assault rifles should be banned and all this. And he's done this for 30 years. Well, that's well and fine. That's, you know, people don't like the Second Amendment. It's the United States. That's your opinion. You know, everybody has their opinion. But I found out through sources that he's a stinking liar. He's a hypocrite. Because in 2000, well, in, in the late 80s or 90s, he applied for a concealed weapons permit. I think it was Alhambra Police Department, and he got it, and so did Brigitte Nielsen when he was married to her. 
Now, in 2004, he applied for a concealed weapons permit from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office. Now, I have started to go to apply to get the report, the stuff from him, because it's public information. And the people who were telling me said he owns guns. He owns multiple handguns. And I said, wow, the guy that wanted to confiscate everybody's handguns, of course, except for his own, and everybody shouldn't carry a gun and own one except for Mr. Stallone. So I said, I got to get this. So a former retired L.A. County Sheriff that I was corresponding to said, yeah, go ahead and have to give it to you. But then he said, and I can't remember this guy's name because I forgot to give him credit in the story. There was a gentleman on one of the pro-gun websites that actually, and that's what the former cop told me, he said, don't even bother going through there. Somebody already did the work for you. And he goes, go to this website. They're all over the website. And I can't remember the gentleman's name. I'm sorry, sir. I mean, I know I didn't put your name in the story and you got a little upset, but the actual concealed weapon paperwork and application, including the handguns that he said he owned with the serial numbers, this gentleman out in California already got through FOIA, through the LA Sheriff's Office, and he posted it online. So I used that in my story, and I actually listed the handguns with the serial numbers, and I blasted them out of the law order because I said, not you're a liar and you're a hypocrite. You want to take everybody's guns away except yours. So at the end of the story, I was putting stuff there, and I said, it was the way I closed it, and I'm just going to paraphrase some of the exact words, but it was something like, did most 99% of gun owners in America, lawful gun owners, never commit a crime with the weapons? And that comes from FBI statistics, and that's true. And I put this little section in, but I can't elaborate too much, but he knows what I'm talking about. So Stallone, I don't even call him Mr. anymore, because to me he's not even a man. Stallone, if you listen to me, read that story again that you already read, and you'll see the last paragraph, and I say, I'd like to ask Sylvester Stallone a question. Have you ever threatened anybody with a firearm or used a firearm in an inappropriate manner? Now, Mr. Stallone knows exactly what I'm talking about, and I'm not going to elaborate any further. Somewhere down the road, that will be another story. So I wrote the story, and I think got like 6,000 hits just overnight on Facebook, because there were a lot of people who were fans of Sylvester Stallone, the Rambo movies, all his movies, and I put that in the story, all his movies promote guns and gun violence. That's where he made his millions from, and I even put that in there. Being that you're such a hypocrite, why don't you take all the millions of dollars that you made from your movies that promote guns and gun violence, which you say you're against, and why don't you give it to all the victims in the United States of mass shootings? I put that in the story. Not to say that I'm not anti-Second Amendment, but he is, but yet he makes his money by promoting guns and gun violence in his movies, and then he doesn't want to do away with the Second Amendment, and he don't think people should own handguns, but yet while he's been saying this for 30 years, he owned handguns, and since 2004 he had a concealed weapons permit from the L.A. County Sheriff's Office, and I even put something in there about that. Now, Lee Baca, I don't know if he's still in prison. He was the sheriff for years in L.A., and I think he was indicted on corruption charges, and he went to prison, but he had a habit through my research of handing out concealed weapons permits to celebrities in California like they were a piece of paper. And I put in my story, how is it that celebrities very easily in California, which is a whole different Republican country of its own, you can't even get a concealed weapons permit, that these celebrities get these concealed weapons permits so easy and a regular citizen can't. 
is it that money talks and BS walks? So what's going on? I put this is all my story. You could read in this title, Sylvester Stallone is a gun-toning hypocrite. So I wrote that story, and I heard he wasn't happy about that. And then the fourth story I wrote was the following year. Um, you know, anybody that messes with kids and abuses women, to me, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm, I don't believe in abortion. You know, you don't mess with kids. That, that really gets to me. Amen, so brother. I started thinking about the story that I wrote, the, you know, the second story about what happened to his sister. Okay. And when I'll be honest with you, when I talked to some of the sources who were talking to me through working with that story, it was emotional. Sure. Because, um, what they were describing and what happened to the, you know, his sister and all this type of stuff. And, you know, I, I'm saying I, I cry too. Things get to me, you know, people don't like it too bad. And, um, so I thought, you know, I got to follow up on, on that story where I put the first paragraph in the first story I wrote, um, about the incident with the, the, the 16 year old girl and stuff in, in the Hilton. So I got hold of John, retired cop. He was out here. He was living out here and he's in his eighties now. And I said, listen, I want to do a story just on that incident. Um, can you give me a copy of the police report? And, you know, he said, well, yeah, you can have it, but I don't know where it is. He says, I have it somewhere, but it's probably in like 50 boxes in the garage. So over a period of months, he was looking, couldn't find nothing. So then sometime last year, he moved, and he moved out of state. He's in the East Coast. And he says, well, if I find it when I get back, when I unload boxes, I'll send you the uh, the report. Great, because that's what I want. That's the one that I saw 25 years prior. So anyway, long story short, he moves, he goes back east, he calls me up excited one day, he goes, hey, I found the report. He says, I'll make a copy of it, but I'm going to, you know, uh, truncate, black out names and stuff, because, you know, if it gets out, they don't want people knocking on people's doors and stuff. I said, I just want the content. I know what happened, okay, some of the content. So thing comes in, FedEx, I get it. And I sit down, and that prompted me to write the story last year, which is the basis for everything that's going on today. I had the original police report exclusive to me and to the paper when we wrote it. It was my story. I broke the story about him and his allegations that he molested his half-sister for years. And um, I, I put, uh, you know, basically some parts. Of, we didn't we didn't publish the police report, and but we worried it because it was so graphic. The paper didn't want to put, you know, the graph. So we toned it down a little, but it got across to people. Um, what he did to this 16 year old girl. And, and, and they published, they published the story. Nothing happened. Um, I, per, I know the paper sent it out to national media. And they said, you're gonna, we're gonna get calls up and down. This is like the biggest thing and all this type of stuff. And no calls came in. And I, I was a little upset. And because I, you know, it, it, 30 years have gone by. Nevada doesn't have like California passed, you know, this, with the, there's no, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Statute of limitations. On sex crimes, when Nevada doesn't have it, this happened 30 years ago. So the only way he would ever be scrutinized, for lack of better words, is in the court of public opinion. And so the story came out, and nothing happened. So the other day I was writing, I, I wrote 35 stories so far on the Las Vegas massacre, and we can talk about that later. Okay. But anyway, I saw all this stuff coming out with the sex and all this stuff, and then it bothered me about the thing last night. So you know what? I'm going to take the police report. And I'm going to transcribe it myself, and I'm going to leave the, the blanks where the names would be, and I just do the story. And I did that, I think, a week ago. And, and then they titled it something else, because the one that came out last year was titled, I'm trying to remember what the title was, 
Um, Sylvester Sloan and bodyguard um, involved in group sex with 16-year-old police say. It was something like that. So they did win the other day, and was another title similar to that. And, and you know, nothing happened. And then all of a sudden, um, I started, because all this other stuff's coming out, people started reading the story that I did last year and the one I did last week. So I started getting some calls, and I got a call from Inside Edition, and I got a call from, his name was Alan Butterfield from the Daily Mail. And both of them wanted a copy of the police report. And I said, and I'd never released it, okay, since I had it. And neither did the paper because they got a copy too. Now it's, it's, I make sure all the names and the victims' names were, um, you know, blacked out. Because when I spoke to the victim for the story last year, it took me a couple of months to track her down. I'm not going to tell you how I tracked her down, but I did. And then once I found her, I had to go through family and she was debating what she was going to talk. Um, she's now a 47, 40 year old woman. Um, she told me, she don't have a police report and what she described to me, was consistent 30 year old police report so that's all in the story I wrote last year Which, before I forget um, I'm 62, I'll be 63 next month sometime I, I don't want to forget stuff but before I forget what's unique about this case and you know I believe all these women that come out talking you know um, they're getting harassed they call them names because they're going after the politicians and celebrities and making it up you know sure can some people be lying sure but not everybody, okay? And you don't attack the victim unless you got some type of proof because it's very hard for a woman to come out. I don't care if you're coming out 20 years after it happened, 30 years after it happened, or three weeks after it happened. To come out and talk that you were sexually assaulted or raped by a man is very hard for a woman to do. So, you know, you got to look at it and put that in perspective when these people come out and say, this is what happened to me. So I'm just bringing it up for a point. But getting back to the story with Stallone, the Stallone story is this. As long as I've been alive, I think this is one of the best sexual assault allegation cases that I've ever seen. And you're going to say, people say, why is that, Doug? Well, I'll tell you why. Because this woman never asked for money. She never asked for fame. She didn't even want to talk to me. She's been anonymous. Okay, I know who she is. I know where she lives. Okay, I, I spoke to her several times this week. But here is what, it, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make: that after this incident happened in 1986, they immediately called the police. Okay, they were in, interviewed by the police. She was interviewed by the salt detectives. She was in town with a girlfriend of hers, and the chaperones were the, her girlfriend's mother and father. They sat in on the interview when she was being interviewed by the sex assault unit. Assuming uh, the sex crimes detail, whatever Metro calls it back then, um, when they were interviewing her. And when I talked to her, I said, why didn't you press charges? And I'll call her Jane Doe, and her name is not Jane Doe. And I asked Jane, I says, why did you press charges? Why didn't you press charges? And she wanted to, but she was so traumatized from the event that she, two detectives talked to her, is what she told me. There was a male and there was a female. And the female detective basically scared the hell out of her said that, you know, Stallone is powerful, he's an actor, he's upcoming, he's got his high-priced attorneys, he's going to drag you to the mud, basically, you know, look like you're, you're a whore. And, you know, he, now you're telling that to what, this is the victim telling me, okay, to a 16-year-old girl who um, just was, for all intents and purposes, I call it, gang-raped by a 40-year-old man and a 27-year-old bodyguard, and they had oral sex with her, 
Stallone allegedly masturbated in front of her, according to what she told me, which is also in the police report. Now, the girl is traumatized, only 16 years old, and then you allegedly, according to her, you have the detective scaring the hell out of her that they're going to drag you through the mud. So she decided she didn't want to prosecute. That was the deciding factor why she didn't prosecute. Okay, so you say, what's the point here? Well, the point is that that victim is a 48-year-old or 49 today. She's still alive. The police report from 30 years ago is a copy of the original police report that the sergeant from the sexual assault detail has, and he's still alive. I spoke when I wrote the story, the mother of the girlfriend who sat in on the interview, and she corroborated what the victim said and also said, that detective even scared the hell out of me. That's why we didn't do anything. She's still alive. Okay? So you have a woman who was assaulted 30 years ago as a 16-year-old. She's an adult woman today. She's still alive. The police report from 30 years ago corroborates what happened to her 30 years ago. The detective who ran, was a supervisor in the sexual assault detail, who knew about the investigation, he's still alive. The mother of her girlfriend who sat in on the interview, she's still alive. So this is a very unique case, okay? And I'm telling you, I got interviewed by ABC last night. They were over here, one of the local affiliates. And I looked at the camera, and I don't know if they put it on the air or not. And I said, you want to say anything? And I said, yes. I look right at the camera, and I'll say this right now here. I would like to ask Stallone one question. Stallone, if a 40-year-old man did what you allegedly did, and I know you did it, I know the woman's telling the truth, to one of your teenage daughters, number one, how would you feel and what would you do? Because I'll tell you, if that was my daughter back in 1986, and him and his bodyguard did what this victim said, told me she did, Stallone wouldn't have had a career after 1986. He wouldn't even be on this earth. So I said to the camera last night, there's one thing that really ticks me off, and that's anybody that messes with kids and anybody that thinks they have the power and the money to do what they want to do because they can get away with it because of their fame and because of their money. So that's what I got to say on the Stallone thing. And then going back to the sister, okay, you look at it this way. She alleged in those court documents that he raped her, he had sexual intercourse with her, all kinds of sex while she was growing up. He was like a parent figure to her. And what does he do after she dies in 2012 of cancer? The mother comes out and says she was a drug addict. They deny all this stuff. She's not anymore alive to defend herself. But what did he do back in 1987 when those allegations came out? He did a settlement with her. He gave her $2 million to keep her mouth shut because none of these documents were ever supposed to see the face, the, you know, the light of day. He gave her $2 million lump sum, paid her $66,000 every month for the rest of her life. And then he gave her $50,000 a year for medical costs if she wanted to go. Now, when I wrote my story, this is a pretty important, to me, it was pretty important. There was a clause, and I printed that in the story when I wrote, when I put all the documents in. There was a clause in the settlement that said this, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't know the exact words, that Tony Anfalidi and her husband can talk about this, but they can't talk about it to anybody else, and she can talk about what happened to her to therapists. Okay? Now, that clause is in there. 
Why is that important? Because people who are victims of sexual abuse have normally go through counseling. And, of course, if you go through counseling with a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, you have to tell them what happened to you. Sure. So you have to talk about the incident. And that's why they put that exception clause in there, that that's the only people she can talk to. And her husband was also bound by the settlement agreement from the way I remember that he also couldn't tell anybody about it because she's obviously going to tell her husband what happened. That's in the clause. So anyway, he pays the sister off. The documents were sealed in court. They were never supposed to see the light of day. And then in 2013, somehow somebody, the, um, the post, excuse me, the New York Post, page six, that that's what happened. But they didn't have the documents that I had, all the documents. They didn't have a copy of the check and a bunch of other stuff that, you know, that I still have to this day. So that's what prompted me to do the story. So when all this stuff came out, like I said, I gave two copies of the report that I had. Of course, it's all blacked out with the victim's name and all the witnesses' names. Inside Edition wanted a copy. I gave it to them. And then Alan Butterfield called me up. I talked to him. He says, yeah, I'm a reporter with the, the Daily Mail, biggest newspaper in England, and reputable, and this type of stuff. So I gave him a copy of the report. And he came out here the other day. You know, he wanted to pay me money to let him, to, to give him the name of the informant. And um, I said, well, that's not going to happen because um, last year when I wrote that story, and I can't remember, was we, well, I don't think it was the Inquirer, the Globe or Examiner, one of those tabloids, I got a call from somebody, and they were, they were, they were offering like really substantial money for me to give them the name of the victim. And I said, you can offer me a million dollars. You know, sure, everybody needs money. But you're not getting it because then, then it goes my credibility. It's like working under, I worked nine years undercover. If I had to dime out my informants and I never did, I never gave my informants names up to anybody. You're done as, a, as an investigator, especially right. when you're working, you know, organized crime and narcotics. You don't do that. Same thing when you're writing, it's principle. You do your journalist, you're writing a story, you know, you're writing a story as an investigative journalist. People are talking to you in sources. I'll never name the sources who gave me the documents against Stallone, the ones I talked to. I'll never release the name of the victim. And I talked to her the other day. I says, if you make the determination that you want to go public with this thing, then I will help you find an attorney to look out for your interest and everything. You don't have to. It's up to you. So that may happen. It may not happen in the future. So my point being is he had enough money to pay off his sister, thinking nobody was going to ever know about those allegations. But it blew up in his face in 2013. Now, in 2012, she passed away. I think she was 48, 47 of cancer. So she wasn't around to defend herself. Okay. Now I also heard, and I, I, from reputable sources, and I haven't confirmed it, but this is what they alleged to me. Okay. When she passed away in 2012, Stallone never had a memorial service for his half sister. I was told by my sources that her ashes remained in the funeral parlor for quite some time until some friends got together and gave us some type of moral service sometime late, well later on. Now, I look at it like this. What kind of man, after his sister dies of cancer, if this is true, would let her ashes stay there and completely forget about it and not even give her a memorial service? It was, from my understanding, it was the friends who gave her the memorial service way sometime later. So that's, that's what I was told. So, you know, you, you leave it at that, you'd look like, well, yeah, it's unbelievable. You know, it's unbelievable. Well, um, it, Okay, just to be clear, now, now our guest is Doug Papa. That's Doug Papa. The article that appeared in the Daily Mail yesterday 
the complete with the, the, the police report that the Daily Mail published went from your hands to the Daily Mail, and you're never you're not mentioned in here at all. They didn't originally, and I was I was pretty steamed yesterday. Sure, I even had some choice words with Alan Butterfield. I think he better not even call me up anymore. So between that and um, I think Bill McIntosh um, got involved and and sent some stuff out on the internet saying, "Hey, what's up, Daily Mail?" How can this be an exclusive when Dunk Papa did it last year and that that was his police report and blah, blah, blah? Well, the, the paper, the editor from the Baltimore Post Examiner, after me screaming at him, finally made contact with, um, I guess the editor or the owner of the Daily Mail and he said, well, they, they're going to credit the Baltimore Post Examiner. So I pulled up the story and way on the bottom of the story, there was this thing, a link and it says, for more information on this, go to the Baltimore Post Examiner. I says, well, what the hell is that? You know? They didn't do anything. So more pressure, and then they end up putting in the story that Doug Popper broke the story in 1986. They didn't say anything that they got the police report that they said was exclusive to them. They even watermarked it and put it into their story with the Daily Mail watermark. I gave that two, three days ago to Alan Butterfield, and I was under the impression that he was going to at least give me, you know, some attribution and say, hey, this came from the guy that broke the story, but he didn't do it. You know, he didn't even mention me at first, and that's the kind of backstabbing journalism that they are over there, and that's that's well and fine. But he will never have any more. He will never have anything to do with me anymore. Neither will the Daily Mail. I think it's like a disgrace. But it's all out now. I had numerous telephone interviews this morning. ABC, like I said, the local affiliate was out here last night, and that went online. Um, German Television is doing a Skype interview with me tomorrow, and there's like five or six more set up for tomorrow night and Sunday. Okay, I, I'll say this. Okay, so Stallone, and I call him that. I don't call him Mister because he's not a man to me. Um, Stallone has been all over the internet saying uh, denying these charges. So what he has, what he is in essence doing is calling the victim a liar. So I'm going to tell Mister Stallone something right now. I have Forty years investigations, criminal investigator of the year in 1986. I interviewed that woman. I'm the only one in the country or the world that interviewed the victim. She is telling the truth, and you, Mr. Stallone, are the liar. And you know that you know you're a liar, and you know that at some point other women are going to come forward because you know exactly what the hell I'm talking about. And I will leave it at that on the Stallone story, unless you want to ask me some questions. Well, BD, BD, BD. Okay, no, th- 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 this is so, folks, what you're hearing is really. From uh, look, uh, here, here's what I feel about the Daily Mail. When when I read that report earlier today, um, my my first question was uh, knowing the backstory, but you know the the fact that you are such a decorated and highly respected law enforcement former law enforcement source that would have lended a, a whole level a whole another level of credibility to uh, and importance to the story. In, in your involvement, in, in your, so, shame on them. And thank you for doing what you've done to expose this, this monster. If, assuming, of course, this, um, which is, you know, what the police report is, is, well, I'm a monster, period, in my, in my opinion. This is, wow, uh, I'm blown away by this. You've got. Are you on? I mean, you got to be taking blood pressure medication, man. I'll tell you something. It, no, I'm. A, I you know I, I've been involved. I, I'll tell you yesterday. 
you would not want to be in my apartment yesterday when that Daily Mail story came out. Somebody said, hey, they just broke the big exclusive. I said, what? And I read it. I was livid, okay? I broke the story last year. That police report I had got as an exclusive from the cop who gave it to me. That was what they should have done was saying, if you want to redo the story, fine. You say, listen, we're doing this story because of all the stuff that's coming up right now. Here's a police report that we obtained from a former cop who writes for the Baltimore Post Examiner. It was part of his story that he broke last year. We were publishing the report. You know, fine. But at least you say how you got it and where you came it from. Now, he went out and he interviewed um, John, the retired um Sergeant from Los Vegas Police Department, and John said, "Yeah, it's all true. You know, it's, it's a real student. I gave it to Doug, whatever he said, and yeah, you can use my name." So he put his name in there. But how did he get John's name? He got it from me two days ago and didn't mention to me. So mm-hmm. when I write stories, and I write a lot of stories, if I'm going to use something that another paper wrote or another reporter wrote, I'm either going to quote the paper, or I did one the other day, and I quoted the Las Vegas Review Journal. I'm not going to say, "Hey, I got this information, and this is what happened." and not mention where it came from, unless I got the information. So that's what you do. It's called professionalism. And and they didn't do that. And then the end, they end up putting my name in and said, yeah, you know, he, he broke the story last year because they were getting so much flack. But you know what? It's over and done with. It's it's all over the world. It's international, this story. I broke the story. I wrote it. The Baltimore Post-Examiner published it last year. We did another story a couple of days ago when we actually I actually transcribed the report with the blanks, and that came out. You know, I got the police report, and I gave it only to Inside Edition and to um, uh, Butterfield from the Daily Mail. And now they published it on their site with the story, and they watermarked it, Daily Mail, yep, yep. exclusive. Well, yeah, okay, it's exclusive, but you got it from me. Yeah, okay? exactly. And it's really not exclusive because that was the basis of my story in 2016. So anyway, you know, it's over and done with. I cool down. I don't usually get upset anymore. There's nothing in this world that I get upset about anymore. I'll be 63 next month. I've been through enough stuff in my life, either on the police department, with the casinos. You know, I lost the job 10 years with the Riviera because they rigged the slot machine, and I turned them into gaming, and I'm banned from the casino business. I can't get a job. I can never get a job on a police department after what I did 25 years ago. So, you know, when I talk, I'm not BSing. Okay, and when no. I write stories about police integrity and corruption and coming forward and breaking the blue wall of silence, I'm not talking out my butt. I'm talking because I lived it and I did it. I would never tell anybody to do something that I didn't do. So I, I that's, tell that's you, the story, uh, long story. That that that's fantastic. Our guest is Doug Papa. Uh, please stay with us over the break. Three minute network break. Uh, exposing police corruption. Exposing this Sylvester Stallone. That the the Oh my goodness. You've got a, and by the way, um, follow Doug Papa on Twitter. Brand new Twitter account. Be one of the first to follow him. I just did. Uh, wow. More on the other side of network break with Doug Papa. Yeah, we're going to get into Man. Las Vegas on the other side. Incredible. Any I'm going to stand up for a couple of minutes because my, my, All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back after this network break. Don't go anywhere.
this edition of the Hagman Report live on Global Star Radio Network. Thank you, Global Star, uh, also BTR and YouTube. This is history in the making. We're talking with a, a, a gentleman named Doug Papa, who is really, in my in my viewpoint, and I, and I from what I'm seeing, we're getting emails from uh, not just the United States but Canada and multiple countries. This guy is a real hero, um, and I want to thank you. I want to thank Mr. Doug Papa. And uh, when, by the way, follow him on Twitter, brand new Twitter account. Uh, get get the major updates. That's Doug Papa, P O P P A. I just uh, follow thanks, him on Twitter. Thanks to Bill McIntosh That's right. of Ocaso Media yes, for sure. setting this up. Now, now Doug, let, let me ask you this: uh, during the break, uh, and I know your backstory. I know that you've been through the the flipping mill, man. Um, from because of exposing corruption, you've been. Your life's been shattered. Now, I, I've got two. Well, I've got a question for you. You want to talk about that, or you want to just move on to Las Vegas? We can talk about anything you want. I can briefly talk about that. I mean, yeah, um, I mean, if you, if you don't mind, because I, I, th- I think p- people need to understand what you, Doug Papa, have gone through exposing corruption, and and what. Just tell us about your your life. Well, the reason the reason why I lost my police career was in in 1992. Well, it started in November 91. Um, 1986, I was going through a divorce, okay? And I worked, I was working undercover. I worked undercover pretty much nine years of my 12 year police career. And, um, you know, the divorce hit me pretty hard. You know, you gotta have your mind focused when you're working undercover because, you know, you're working alone. I mean, it's your life that's in stake and you, you have to be focused. And it was, I was getting to the point where the divorce, really hit me really hard. There was a lot of extenuating circumstances and it really hit me hard. So I I resigned from the sheriff's office for a couple of months with the intention of coming back. This was in, in spring of eighty seven to come back, take six months off and then come back. And and that's what I did. Um during that period of time, uh I got a call from um a female uh a probation officer that I knew. I actually dated her for a while after the divorce. And long story short, um, there was a gentleman named Frank Hoppus. He was the chief of police in Middleburg, Virginia. And there was a, a woman, there was a family up there, I don't say family, a husband and wife. There was William Douglas Carter, and his wife was Carol Carter. And they were going through a divorce. And it was like, you know, they were millionaires, had a lot of money, a big mansion up there. And um, I guess they were going through the settlement proceeding. Okay. And Frank, who was the chief of police in Middleburg, had gotten in touch with Mary, who was um, the female probation officer that I knew, um, and said, hey, there's this woman that's looking for a cop or an ex-cop, retired cop, to stay in her house as a, basically a bodyguard um, because of she's going through and she's afraid of husband because the husband, you know, she's saying he's threatened to kill her and all this stuff. You know, like people go through a divorce, you hear all this crazy stuff. So anyway, Mary called me up, and um, I made contact with the woman. Her name was Carol Carter. And she came up, I think it was the next day, the day after she picked me up at the house. I was, I was going through a divorce and I was living with a, a friend of mine who was a sergeant on the, Ed Lacey, he was a sergeant on the sheriff's office. He was getting ready to go to customs or he just got hired by customs and he was still in Sterling, Virginia. And I was staying with him. So she came over to the house, picked me up, blue Cadillac and, um, you know, not, you know, nice lady, I thought, and we're talking and she's telling me, you know, that, you know, all the, all the bad stuff about her husband. At one point, we went over to our daughter's house and we talked. And then after that, we drove to the mansion in Middleburg, Virginia. Middleburg, Virginia in Northern Virginia is a pretty exclusive area. A lot of mansions, hunt country, horse country and all that. So 
took me up to the mansion. So as while she's going up there, she shows me, takes out a handbag on the car there, and she shows me a, I remember this, it was a Smith & Wesson snub-nosed stainless steel um, revolver. And I said, what are you doing with that? She said, well, I bought it at the gun shop on Middleburg, and the guy showed me how to use it, or was going to show me how to use it. And blah, blah. Anyway, puts it in the bag, goes to the house, we go inside, and it was a mansion is what it was. I mean, they got a basement with a pool, I mean, a pool table, racquetball, I think whatever was down there. And she says, you'll be on this side. And my room is like way over there. If you have a girlfriend, she could stay here with you. You can use the pool. I mean, it was a mansion. That's what it was. So as we're rolling in, now I didn't know her husband was still on the property. As we're rolling in, this pickup truck comes right up to the back of her car. It's like a blue pickup, jaw colored from what I remember. And I turn around and look and the truck goes in reverse and backs up to what was a, a guest house on the property, a guest house. A guest house would be a home to all of us. They called it a guest house. And then she says to me, oh, that's him. And he saw me come in, but being that you're in the car, see somebody in the car, he backed up. And I says, who? She says, Doug, my husband. His name was William Douglas Carter. Everybody called him Doug. And I said, he's here? He says, yeah, he lives over there in the in the guest house. And, and I'm thinking, well, Dean, this now complicates things, okay? Because she's saying, you know, he has guns and you know, he's does all this stuff and everything like that. So anyway, go in the mansion. She gives me the tour. Come out. And it is where at some point, from I remember, this is 25, this is 25 years ago, she makes the statement to me that she would shoot herself even if she died, but she can make it look like he did it, so he would ruin the rest of his life or spend the rest of his life in jail. Now, I was going through a divorce, too. So, of course, I talked to her. I says, you know, don't talk like that. You know, it's crazy. I says, why don't you just stay? Because she was staying at the time with her daughter in Sterling, Virginia. But she wanted to move back into the mansion. And I said, why don't you just stay with your daughter until the settlement thing? No, it's my mansion. I'm going to go back in there and live like this. So she says, what do you think? You interested? So she dropped me off at the house. And um, I said, well, I'll, you know, think about it, and I'll let you know tomorrow. And I had a couple concerns at that point. I didn't tell her. One, she showed me her gun. She's making this crazy statement. But, you know, it didn't bother me because people make crazy statements. And I heard worse stuff from people going through divorces. Oh, I'll kill the SOB and stuff like that. So, but... What concerned me was that he was on the property. So when I asked her about it, she says, well, there's a restraining order on him. He can go anywhere on the property, but he can't go into the mansion. So I said, I mean, okay, he's allowed to go in. Yeah, he could be like the front door, but he can't come into, you know, 20 feet of the mansion or something like this. So I said, well, you know, to me, I'm going to be armed, okay? Um, and he may have a gun. It's going to be a situation that something bad could happen. So I thought about all that stuff. I went home. I called up a friend of mine, Bill Harris, who was a, uh, he just got promoted to lieutenant on the sheriff's office. We used to work narcotics together. And I told him, you know, what happened? And he said to me, you know, what's going Well, I'm kind of concerned about he's there and the statement she's making. And he told me, I think she's setting you up to get in a confrontation with her husband, maybe to kill him or something. That'd be the end of the story. And he said, I, I wouldn't take the gig. And, and so I called her back the next morning and I declined. I said, you know, I, I declined. I said, I appreciate the offer. I think you should remain with your husband in, excuse me, with your daughter in Sterling, Virginia. And then she kind of yelled at me and says, you know, if you're afraid of my husband, and both I said, ma'am, I'm not afraid of nobody. There's just a situation here with him being on the property. You said he has a gun. If he's standing 15 weight from the door, we go out and he's got a gun in his hand. I mean, this is a situation where something could erupt. I never met the guy. So all I know is what she was telling me about him. I didn't know, you know, if he was bad, good, or anything. So that was the end of that. And it was... This was now 1987 spring. Sometime later, I turn on the television, and I hear that it says uh, Carol Carter, Middleburg, Virginia, was shot in a home 
uh, allegedly by her husband, and he's up in New York at a farm. And I went in, I ran in, I look at the television, and my, you know, my stomach's gone from the department. But, you know, once a cop, always a cop. And I'm thinking to myself, the first thing I thought was, man, I felt so bad that had I taken the job and been in that house on the other side, maybe he wouldn't have come in, or maybe I could have prevented it. All this is going through my head. So I felt really bad. I didn't know anything about the case other than what I heard on television. So the next day, I went up to the criminal investigations division, and um, it was my boss when I was working narcotics was Captain Vernon Beamer. He ran the whole criminal investigations division, and, and the narcotics unit was part of that. So I was just going to go up there and tell him that I had contact with her, you know, a, a couple weeks, a couple months ago, and this is what she showed me, showed me the gun, all this. So as I walk in, I see Bill Harrison there, and he's in uniform now doing something because he's a lieutenant. And I said, Bill, that woman I heard, Carter, that's the woman that wanted to hire me, you know. And he goes, yeah, you know, I thought about it, blah, blah. He says, what are you doing? I says, I'm going to go talk to Vernon. He says, well, yeah, Vernon's in the office. Go down and talk to him. So I went in there, and I told him exactly what I just said. You know, she hired me, took the mansion, showed me the gun, made a statement. And he says, you know, the case is wrapped up, Doug. He's in upstate New York with an extradite him back, and you know, he did it, and blah, blah, blah. And you got to understand something at this point, okay? When you're a cop, and I hate to say this, you know, now I know different. But when you're a cop, when a cop tells you something, you agree. Because most cops have the attitude, um, I'm not going to cuss. I mean, I don't think if I say assholes out of curse, I can I say that. Well, but you just most did. cops, That's all right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Most cops say, you know, there's cops, and then there's the a-holes, That's the regular right. people. This is that's the way they think that you know everybody's guilty, and you know there's no and all that kind of stuff. So he told me that, and I'm thinking, fine. I had nothing to do with the case. I didn't work it. I was not on the sheriff's office at the time. I was gone for a couple of months. So I told him. And I went to Bill, and I said, Bill was there. He goes, yeah, yeah, I just told him, you know, what happened. And Bill knew what happened. So, and I left. Now, January 1988, I'm back on the department. And I hear that the trial's coming up, the attempted murder trial, or whatever they called it in Virginia time, malicious wounding, felony, you know, something like that. But anyway, so I hear that's coming up. So I go, and I talk to the prosecutor. His name was William Birch. The Commonwealth attorney in Virginia, other places they call it the district attorney, the top dog. And I walk in, and I tell him the whole story about what she told me. She showed me the gun, and that I also told Vernon Beamer, you know, in the spring of 87. Now, this is like January. It was almost immediately when I got back on the sheriff's office. I heard the trial was coming up, so I went and I told him. And he basically says the same thing. Oh, we got an airtight case. Okay, you know, I worked with prosecutors for years. You got no reason to doubt him. Okay, I left. I had nothing to do with it. Sometime later, I heard he was he was found guilty of attempted murder, 14 years in prison, 20, something like that. And then I guess there was an appeal after that. And But I had nothing to do with the case. Nobody ever took a statement, deposition. Didn't seem bizarre to me because I told the captain, I told the prosecutor, and obviously I figured they had so much evidence against the guy. You know, the, like they said, it was an airtight case and it's wrapped up and blah, blah, blah. So that was the end of that. But that really wasn't the end of that. That was, like I said, you know, I came back on the department January 8th. It was pretty much right after that. And um, then I hear he's found guilty. And then I heard, you know, that later on there was some type of an appeal. And then, now that's in 1988. Now, there was a lot of stuff going on in the sheriff's office that was wrong. We had narcotics missing uh, from the from the, the vault in the courthouse. It was never returned to the evidence room. There was other evidence allegedly missing motorboat motors, and that was supposedly at the sheriff's house, allegedly in southern Virginia, and all this stuff, crazy stuff's going on for years. Um, so, it was around October, November 1991, I'm coming out of the courthouse, 
you know, this is like four and a half years later, and I see uh, Judge Chamblin, James Chamblin, he was a circuit court judge, and, you know, he made a joke to me. He says, how you doing, Judge? And he says, good, Doug, you know, and he says, can I talk to you or you're undercover? You know, because I had a beard and long hair and everything, and I said, no, we could talk, so we were just, you know, talking about different things, but the Carter case was always bothering me because, you know, I never testified. There was a lot of other crooked stuff that was going on. So I told him about it. And he said, did you ever testify? I said, no, I never did. And did anybody ever take? No, nobody took a report on it. And he said, do you know if your statement, because I told him what happened with the woman, do you know if that statement ever made it to the defense? I said, I don't know. He says, well, you know, that's exculpatory evidence, but Brady material and all that. And I said, yeah. He says, what's bothering you? I says, because now I'm back on the department, right? I says, would, would it be out of line for me to find out who the defense attorney was in that case and call him and tell him? He goes, Doug, I've known you for years. I know you, you'll do the right thing, what you got to do, something like that. So right after that, immediately I go into the courthouse. I asked the clerk who was the attorney, and somebody remembered, oh, yeah, it was. I think it was Plato Kacharis or something like that. So I went home. I called him up, and uh, I told him who I was. He knew who I was because he had some cases out there in Loudoun. And he says, what's going on? And I says, well, I want to tell you a story. So he goes like nuts. He says, what? <laughs> and, I, I, and I said, yeah, this is what you told me. And I said, I told Vernon Beamer before the trial in the spring 87, uh, summer 87, spring around there, and I told Bill Birch before the trial. And he's going crazy on the other end of the phone. I never heard of this because he was the attorney for Carter, right? And now Carter's in jail for like four and a half years by this time. So he says, and he's just like going crazy. So he said, listen, I'm not his attorney anymore. But do you know that Carter's got new attorneys because he's been maintaining his innocence for years, and he's got new attorneys who are trying to um, put a motion together for a habeas corpus motion to get him out because they have stuff that to, to file a habeas motion to get him a new trial. And he doesn't elaborate. I said, no, I don't know anything about that. He says, I'm going to give your name and information to the new attorneys. Now, this is like nighttime when I'm talking to him, like 5, 6 o'clock. Well, I go to bed, and about midnight, the phone rings. Now, this is um, 1991, uh, November 91, and it's these two attorneys are on the on a conference call, and the, the, I don't remember the other guy's name, but um, John Edwards, not the guy that ran for politics, but John Edwards is, was one of the attorneys. So he says, Doug, we got a call from the attorney, and he told us, can you tell us again what you told him? And they go crazy. They said, this is not even part of the record. And I, but, and I tell them, I said, um, well, let me tell you something. There's witnesses who can corroborate what I'm telling you. And and he's they're just going crazy, right? So they say, listen, tomorrow morning in Loud County Circuit Court, it's too late to get you a subpoena. We're having the first motion before the judge for this appeal, this habeas corpus motion. Would you come down and testify without a subpoena? I'm a cop. Sure, tell the truth. Yeah, I got no problem. Yeah, I'll be there tomorrow morning, nine o'clock. So I got off the phone, one o'clock in the morning, I call my supervisor up, we call him Rocky, he's William Calaviti. He was already retired from the Fairfax County Police Department and now as a supervisor of narcotics. So I tell him what's going on, and he's on the other line. He says, Doug, man, this is bad, Doug. They're going to come after you. This, it's, you know what you know what's going to happen? He says, oh, no, I'll be in the courtroom tomorrow when you testify. Because he said, this is just going to blow up. Like, this is just phenomenal. So I go in the courtroom. He's sitting in there. It basically was an empty courtroom. It was Judge Horn was on the bench. Um, and see, this is all in my mind. You never forget stuff. Like this in 25 years ago. Well, because it cost me my job. So anyway, it was Judge Horn was the judge on the bench, circuit court judge. My supervisor, Rocky, he was in the courtroom, two women. And when I walk in, I saw the two attorneys, and they came over and shook my hand. And then 
Doug Carter, and I never met Doug Carter before. So they go up to him and said, this is Investigator Papa, Inspector Papa from the Sheriff's Office. Of course, now he hates cops because he's alleging basically misconduct and corruption put him in jail. I later found out that was that was the basis for the habeas motion. Sure. They didn't know anything about me yet, okay? Um, except the night before when I talked to them. So I go to shake his hand. He doesn't shake my hand. And he says, like, what's he doing here? Because now you know, he hates cops. And they said, no, he has some information that may help us, but we can't get into it. So he just turns around, ignores me, sits down. I, they put me on the stand. It was just me. Like, this courtroom was basically empty. Mm-hmm. So I tell him what I just told you. Now, at one point while I'm testifying about she showed me the gun and then made the statement to me, I see him turn, Carter, Doug Carter, turn around. I couldn't see what he was doing because I'm on the witness stand. And then so I'm finished. So I go out. They thank me. And I go out the back door. Rocky comes right out behind me. And he says, Doug, um, the S, I'm, I'm going to use not these curse words. He goes, the S is going to hit the fan, man. This is, this is just unbelievable. This is, this is crazy. He's, they're going to come after you with, I says, come after me for what? I'm telling the truth. That's what happened. He goes, man, no, this, this is like, this is good. Well, he's just going crazy. But he then he says to me right there, he says, that guy's innocent. You don't know anything about the guy. I said, what? He goes, that man is innocent. I said, how the hell do you know that? He says, did you see what he did when you testified about the woman and the gun and the statement? I said, no, I saw him move. He turned around and started crying, and the woman that was sitting behind him gave him a handkerchief. He said, Doug, that man is innocent. I don't know if he's innocent or guilty. All I knew was that they didn't know about my information. So that happened. The next day, um, I'm in the sheriff's office. The sheriff was John Isom. He's still alive today. I think he's already 80 years old. As far as I'm concerned, he's a POS, okay? Uh I'm in his office, and he's telling me, what do you think you're doing? You can open up a can of worms. You keep your mouth shut, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, what are you talking about? Uh, Keep your mouth shut, and all this type of stuff. Um, This is going to blow over. And I said, how could it blow over? I said, because the second part of the habeas motion was going to be January 2nd, of 1992. It's now November of 1991. So I said, I said, Sheriff, I, he, I, I says there could be a guy in jail like who's innocent that they didn't get the evidence. I mean, I know, I don't know if he's innocent or guilty. All I knew is my statement, the exculpatory evidence didn't come to the defense at the original trial. I now know that. Mm-hmm. So he's basically telling me to keep my mouth shut. And, um, so I walk out puzzled, like, you know, why is he saying that? Well, at some point, the loud one of the local papers came out, and then basically the prosecutor basically told the paper that I was a perjurer, that I basically lied in court at this hearing. Wow. So now I'm ticked off. So I go up to the sheriff's office that morning with the paper under my arm, and I says, what are you going to do about this? And he says, I'm going to do nothing. It's got nothing to do with the sheriff's office. It's between you and Birch, William Birch, the prosecutor. Mm. I says, how can I have nothing to do with the sheriff's office? I'm one of the detectives investigators. Vernon Beamer is the captain. He's still a captain at CID. I told him, you know, in 87, and he says, well, I got news for you. I spoke to Vernon Beamer, and I spoke to Birch, and both of them saying, you never had any conversation with them. They don't know what you're talking about. Wow. So I say to him, they're lying. Sheriff, I have witnesses that can corroborate what I testify to. And he ignores me. He says, I told you the other day, you keep your mouth shut, this is going to blow over, you're going to open up a can of worms. I says, 
He called me a liar in the newspaper. I had commendations, I had 20, I mean, like 25 commendations, letters of commendation from the whole, you know, all the years I was on the sheriff's office, almost 12 years. Detective of the year in 1986. I never, you know, nothing bad in my file. And this SOB prosecutor, the prosecutor, the Commonwealth attorney, the district attorney for intensive purposes in other states is calling me a liar. And the sheriff is not backing me up. So I'm, I'm walking out like totally bewildered, like what the hell is going on? So I go home and then the next day or something, one of the reporters made contact with me and do you want to make a statement? Oh, you're damn right I do. I said, this is what the sheriff said. Birch is lying and Beamer's lying. I told them, I told Vernon Beamer in 87 what I just testified to and I told Birch before the trial and the sheriff's telling me to keep my mouth shut. Of course, now that paper comes out. I'm back in the sheriff's office. What the hell do you think you're doing? Mm-hmm. I told you. You value your job. I can bust you down. You can go in civil process. You better watch what you're doing. You can open up a can of worms. Listen, I said, Sheriff, here's how you fix this right now. Initiate an internal affairs investigation. Put Birch on a polygraph, Beamer on a polygraph, and me, and let's see who's telling the truth. He says, there's going to be no I investigation. You keep your mouth shut. And you don't talk to the papers anymore. Now, I'm thinking something's really stinks here, but I don't know why. So now at this time, I was getting hang-up phone calls, some threats, hanging up and all this type of stuff. It was getting really bad. Every third day I was in the sheriff's office. You better keep your mouth shut with him, the undersheriff, one of the captains. Finally, I'm not sleeping. I got, um, it was the day after Thanksgiving of, of November, Thanksgiving in November of 1991. I called up a friend of mine who was an F, he was a resident FBI agent, worked out of Dulles Airport for Loudoun County. His name was Al Malinchek. I called him up. I said, Al, I got to talk to you. He goes, yeah, Doug, I see everything going on in the newspapers. What's going on? I says, you know, the whole thing is getting crazy here. So I made an appointment. I think it was that Monday. Uh, I went down to Tuesday and I spoke to him and I told him everything that happened. I told him about all the other, you know, the missing narcotics. There's other, there was a lot of uh, alleged corruption, financial records and asset money that nobody knew was happening. It wasn't being all this. I told him everything. I just sat there and I said, listen, boom, this, this is all right now. So he writes it all up. And then he says, I'm going to forward this to the public integrity section at a headquarters because Loudoun County is 35 miles west of Washington, D.C. It's a suburb of Washington, D.C. in Virginia. So he said, I'm going to send it to headquarters and we'll see what happens. So sometime around the beginning of the, I mean, this from my mind, it was somewhere before Christmas of 1991, I get a call and it's from um, an FBI agent named Scott Sutherland. And he says, um, we want to come out. You need to come out to Office of Full Church. We, we, we got authorization from headquarters to initiate a public integrity investigation with the sheriff's office based on what I said. So uh, I went out there, and I met with him and his partner. His name is Tom Fitzpatrick. Um, Tom died. Scott now is, is, I think, director of security because I connect with him on LinkedIn in Pennsylvania for one of the colleges or hospitals. But anyway, so I go out and meet with Sutherland, and I meet with the you know what was going on in the Carter case, and then all this other stuff, which they were more concerned with the other stuff because they didn't want to get into the middle of the Carter investigation because it was was now an appeal, you know, like an appeal for habeas. But they were interested in that, and they were interested in the asset forfeiture money and all this stuff and the missing drugs. So I told them everything, okay? And then they started asking me like crazy questions, like you know, do you skydive? Um, <laughs> do you scuba dive? Why well, used to not anymore? You drive a motorcycle? Why well, used to do not anymore? And I'm like, what's this stuff about? Well, if something happens to you, we, you know, we need to know this. 
like if all of a sudden I'm driving my motorcycle and the wheel comes off, did somebody pull the wheel off? Because now they're concerned for my safety. So I said, hey, I'm not worried about it. You know, I worked, I worked nine years undercover and I took care of myself. So go out. That was the end of that. Two days after I talked to the FBI, I'm in the sheriff's office. Now with him, the under sheriff, another POS named Charlie Cooper. He died a couple of years ago. He got what came to him and they're telling me, what did you talk to the FBI about? They knew I'd gone to the FBI. Oh, wow. And that kind of shocked me. I don't know how they knew. I heard later on that somebody said there was somebody that worked there, was a girlfriend of somebody, but I don't really know how they knew. But anyway, he says, what did you talk to the FBI? We know you went to the FBI. He even knew it was the false church office of the FBI in False Church, Virginia. So I played stupid. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, we want to know what you told the FBI. And why do you keep talking to the newspapers? I said, well, I keep talking to the newspaper because you're not backing me up for some reason. You don't want to do an IA, and i got to defend my reputation. So... We told you to keep your mouth shut. Now, what does the FBI know? So I finally told him. I says, I take out a card, and I go over to his desk, and I get a piece of paper, and I write down a phone number. I give it to him. He goes, what's that? That's the number of the FBI agent. Call him up and ask him what I told him. I says, is there anything else? So I started to go out the door. And he says, you hold on. Now he's, he's, now he's cussing, right? He says, you hold on. I can demote you. You, you value your job. And now I'm, you know, I'm ticked off. And I says, you do what you got to do, Sheriff. I'm leaving. So I left. And then I thought things were going to get better because now the FBI is looking into things. They know it. They're going to lay off. They didn't. It, it got worse. Every two or three days, I'm in the office getting threatened. Now, right before Christmas, I hear the Virginia State Police are coming in to do an investigation about the Carter case and supposedly what I told, you know, I testified to in November. And I'm thinking, great. They're going to put people on the polygraph because the state police has the authority. They have to ask the, because they work from the attorney general's office. They can petition the governor, the way I understand it, to so they can order the Commonwealth attorney to go on a polygraph. So I said, great, you know, that's what I'm thinking. They'll, Birch will go on a polygraph. Beamer will go on the polygraph. They'll interview my witnesses from years ago. I'll go on a polygraph, and they'll find out that I'm telling the truth. And even before this thing goes to the second habeas after New Year's, they'll find out that evidence was really withheld. Okay? So I'm all excited. Now, this is how rotten somebody was at dispatch. I'm, I'm in my car one day. There's an unmarked, you know, piece of shit, excuse me, a piece of crap car because I was undercover and the radios were hidden under the seat. So I had the radio on. I'm driving up Route 7 and then dispatcher comes across and says, my new number was CID1. Right across the frequency, so everybody can hear in the county. CID one. There are some special agents from the Virginia State Police Bureau of Innovation. They want to talk to you about your testimony. Go to the Sterling substation and talk to them. So I get on the mic and said, "Thanks for advertising." You know, purposely done. So I go in. There's two agents in there, a female and a guy named Bill O'Connor that I knew when I was in. The, I was on. I got removed from the sheriff's office at a point in time when I was working on narcotics around eighty four, eighty three, eighty four, eighty five, and I was assigned sworn in as a Virginia State Trooper, and I was on a state police undercover task force for over a year and a half with um, other criminal, other narcotics investigators from each jurisdiction in Northern Virginia, and it was run by the Virginia State Police. So we had sworn in as a Virginia State Trooper. We had powers of arrest all over the state, and I was on there, for, like I said, over 18 months. And I, I knew Bill was one of the regular investigators, but I never he wasn't assigned to narcotics. So I walk in thinking this is going to be great, and the first thing out of his mouth, he says, I think this is a bunch of BS. I think somebody paid you off. So I, I wanted to kill the guy, right? So 
Now, I said, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, I think this is a bunch of BS. I think somebody paid you off for your testimony, and I'm getting ready, and I want to punch the guy out. And I says, really? I says, are you going to talk to my witnesses? He says, what witnesses? Witnesses who I know will remember from years ago some things about me going to mansion or whatever. And I haven't heard talk to these people for years, the witnesses, right? He goes, why would I talk to them? Well, you just said that you thought I, I, I just made this testimony up. But if you, t- I'm not talking to anybody's witnesses. So basically I said, F you and I leave. Now I'm totally down and depressed. I hadn't gotten any sleep, you know, for weeks. So I go home and I call up the defense attorney, Edwards, and I said, you ain't gonna believe what happened. This, I thought the state police was coming in and, um, because the attorney general asked them to come in because the attorney general's office has to handle the habeas motion for the state of Virginia because Carter's in jail in a state prison, so yeah, the attorney general would be the one handling the habeas motion, not Bill Birch, the county prosecutor. So he tells me, Doug, do you know what's going on here? And I says, what's going on is I'm going to lose my job, and I don't know why. All I did was tell the truth. He says, listen, I'm going to have my private investigator, his name is Gary, I remember all these names like it was yesterday, Gary Gochenauer, he's going to come down and talk to you and explain some stuff to you. So anyway, later that night, Gary came over the next morning, I don't remember what it was, and he comes to the apartment and he says, do you know what's going on here? I said, yeah, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my career, and I don't understand why the sheriff's not backing me up. And he says, well, I can't tell you specifics because, you know, you're going to be a witness in, after New Year's in two, three weeks in January, but I can tell you this. If we win the habeas motion, that's why they already had the habeas motion. Not because they knew about me, but they had other misconduct and corruption that was withheld from Carter's defense attorney. But none of my stuff, because they didn't know about it. He says, if we win a new trial, we're going to prove that Sheriff Isom himself purging himself at Doug Carter's original trial years ago. Now I'm thinking... No wonder he ain't backing me up and doing right. No wonder the can of worms statement. The can of worms is going to lead back to him. Because if they're going to accuse him of perjury, perjury, if the Carter's trial, and that's what got him convicted, you know, part of the conviction, because the only witness against Carter was his wife. And I'm thinking, Jesus, here I am going to my boss, the sheriff of the county, the highest law enforcement officer in Lowndes County, saying, why aren't you doing an IA, internal affairs investigation? Why aren't you putting on the polygraph? And he's saying to me, well, it's not, it's not, it's not something to do with the department. Yeah, it does. I work for you. Vernon Beam is one of your captains. Well, it's between you and Birch. And we're not putting you on and keeping your mouth shut. The reason why he was saying that, because he knew. Hey, I'm going to do an investigation that's going to lead back to me. And there it is. So that's that's yep. what happened when the PI told me. So I'm thinking, man, am I really sunk now? So anyway, between that time and this, now this is like around Christmas, the habeas motion, the big one, was going to be in January of 1992. So the private investigator tells me, do you know where these witnesses are? I said, Jesus, you know. Bill Harris, the guy I talked to years ago, he was retired. He was out in Colorado. Uh, Mary was the the federal, the, the county probation officer who then moved on to federal U.S. probation officer. She was based out, I think, Martinsburg, West Virginia. Ed, who was my roommate, who I was living with during my divorce, he was there when, Carter, when Mrs. Carter picked me up, and I told him everything that happened. Um, he's now a U.S. customs agent in McAllen, Texas, so I told him, yeah, they're all spread all over the country. So I said, why? He says, well, I'm going to have to track them down and go talk to them. So what happened was I had, had no contact with those witnesses. I, you know, I haven't seen them for years. So now fast forward to January 2nd, 1992, 
here's the habeas motion, the big one, and the court, you know, there's reporters in the courtroom, and now it's packed. It wasn't like the first one in November, just three or four people. It's packed to the walls, because now the papers got a hold of it. You know, the papers, because there was this battle going on in the papers between me and the prosecutor. I wouldn't let it go. Every time they told me to keep my mouth shut, I'm talking to another reporter. So not only did the local Loudon Times mirror get involved, but then, and I got to give credit to this guy. He's still alive. I talk to him every now and then. His, his name is Brett Phillips. He's the founder at the time and editor of a new paper in Loudon called Leesburg Today. He's the one that really pushed my story and got all this out in the open. Um, it was Leesburg Today, and then the Washington Post got in on it. The local bureau of the Washington Post was based in Leesburg. They got in on it, and all the local news stations went on it. So now it was like all over the place. Long story short, January 2nd, 1992, I walk into the courtroom, and it's packed. And in the courtroom, when I look on the side, I see Bill Harris. <laughs> I see Mary. I see Ed Lacey. They look at me. They nod. And now the prosecutor for the state, his name was Bob Condon, he comes over because he sees me looking at these, and he says to them, who are you? And Bill says, Bill Harris. And turns around, and he goes, who are you? Ed Lacey. And then Mary said, who are you? Mary gives the name. Mary Morris, she's a different name now. She's married. And um, so he kind of looks now bewildered because he knows who they are now. He knows because I mentioned those names to the state police officer. I said, these are my witnesses you can talk to. I know they have to remember something. So now he knows, wow, they're here. So what happened was, of course, when I testify, you know, when you finish testifying, you're in the witness room. You don't know what anybody else is testifying right. to. So I was the first witness. I get on. I basically, long story short, for time, I testify what I just told you in the audience on the show. So I get off. And, of course, now I'm getting grilled by the the attorney, the assistant attorney general, Bob Condon. You know, he's trying to make me look like I'm a liar and all this type of stuff. And, and I'm not. I was tough to him. And, the, and the, the, the judge kept telling him to back off. And he wouldn't. <laughs> and finally the judge says, it's gone. Back off. So he ticked me off so bad, I lost it on the stand. I just lost my ticket because I wasn't getting any sleep. And I said, Your Honor, i got to tell you something. And then Condon says, there's no more questions, Your Honor. He's mm. going to keep quiet. And the judge turned around to me and said, Detective Papa, because I'm now back on the department, Investigator Papa, what do you want to say, Mr. Papa? And I tell him, I'm sorry, Your Honor, for blowing up like this, but it's been hell since November. I said, I've got any sleep. I've been threatened with my job. They don't want to do an IA. The sheriff's telling me he's open up the camp. So I, and now the courtroom's packed. The reporters are just, and I, I just unloaded, right? And he's objecting. The judge is telling him to sit down, continue, Mr. Papa. And, and I said, you know, I just don't know what's going on. And so he let me talk for like five, ten minutes. Everybody's writing. And then I finished. He said, is there anything else you want to say? This is judge. His name was Arthur Sinclair. He was a retired judge brought in specifically to handle the habeas motion. So I said, no, that's it. And I'm sorry if I blew up your honor. It's no problem, blah, blah, blah. And then he says to Con, you got any questions for him? No. Well, then, of course, now it's, you know, John Edwards' turn to talk to me and, you know, um, cross-examine me. So he tells me, tell us about the gun, the mansion. He goes, I guess Mrs. Carter was saying that she not only ever took me to pick me up the house, but she never took me to the mansion, mm. which was a lie. I was in the man. I can describe it. So I didn't know what they would do, and I found out later on why they did this. They had a big blackboard up there. So John Edwards, the defense attorney for Mr. Carter, said, can you describe what the property looks like that you went to years ago? Caught, you know, the estate in Middleburg. And I said, yes. And can you describe what's inside the house? So I got up there, and I started the driveway, and the houses, you know, the service court, the, the guest house is over there. 
and you make a turn and the big man, you go in through this little mud room, there's a washer and dryer, or the bedrooms were up on the top, down the bottom is a ping pong table. I'm describing the whole mansion mm. because she testified that I, she never took me to the mansion. Well, if I never was in the mansion, how the hell I know what the property looked like? Right. So, you know, I'm on a testifying. That's, that's the end of that. I'm out. I guess my witnesses testified and Judge Sinclair said he's going to, now this went on for two days. Okay. He said, I'm going to need some time to review all this. Now I can tell you this. In the two weeks that he was reviewing, they didn't say boo to me. There was no harassment. There was no threats about losing my job. Then one of the secretaries came over one day and says, Doug, I can tell you something. When Judge Sinclair comes back and says Carter stays in jail, he doesn't deserve a new trial, they're going to go after you for perjury and this. I said, they can do what they want. I didn't lie, you know? And was they were all thinking that Carter's not going to win a new trial. Right. Long story short, for time, um, by this time I'd gotten an attorney. Because the FBI said, you need to get an attorney. I didn't have any money. Great guy. He, he, pro bono, one dollar. His name was John. He's, he's on CNN now all the time. His name was John Flannery. He was a former assistant U.S. attorney out of Southern District of New York. He was one of the best criminal defense attorneys in Lowell County. One reporter says, Why don't you, I can't afford it. He's a $400 attorney. You know, I lost my job. I pulled my retirement. I lost my retirement. So I went up to him one day. I called him up and he says, Doug Pop, I've been looking, I've been looking at the news. Come up and see me. I walked to him in his office the next day. He said, you got a dollar in your pocket? Hmm. I said, yeah. I take out a dollar. He says, let's give him hell. I'll see what I can do. I'm your attorney for a dollar. He did. He put the sheriff through hell. It didn't work because in the, in Virginia, the law was that the sheriff was a constitutional he officer. He can hire and fire at will. And so, you know, it was wrongful termination, but the courts could never force him to put me back to work. So that's the gist of that. So, um, so anyway, that's happened. Uh, two weeks went by. John calls me up and says, Doug, Judge Sinclair has come back with his decision. And um, we go back in the courtroom. Now, in comes Sheriff Isom and um, Charlie Cooper under sheriff. And I think it was Jeff Brown, one of the captains, and Vernon Beamer, all, all the all the golden, all the bud buddies, I call them, right? All the ones that were involved in the Carter case. Sure. And they were looking at me with the smirks, like, hey, we got you now, buddy, you know, all this. Huh. Judge comes in. He starts reading this legal thing. And then he says this. And when he said this, I turned around and looked at them. They all put their heads down because they knew it was coming next. I remember this um, just like it was 25 years ago. And he says, after you read this legal thing, you know, they're all looking at me laughing like, hey, we got you now, right? So he says, this court testimony has to make a decision it would rather not make. He just told them he doesn't believe anybody but me. They wow. put their heads down. And the next thing he says, and it was almost exact words, I'll paraphrase, but almost exact words was, based on the testimony of Mrs. Carter, the prosecutor Bill Birch, Captain Vernon Beamer, Doug Papa and his witnesses, the court believes Doug Papa's story to be credible, backed up by credible witnesses. William Douglas Carter needs to be released immediately from state prison and given a new trial where all the evidence will be presented in a couple of months. And the courtroom went ballistic. So he got out of jail, and I'm thinking, great, everything's going to be good for me now because, you know, it's out in the open. Things got progressively worse. Mm -hmm. The threats, the you know, you're going to be demoted. They actually suspended me because I kept talking to the papers. They demoted me. They actually demoted me when uh, Inside Edition came out in January 92, right after that, and did a story. And then I think Current Affair did one. And then in April 92, now I'm still on the department. I was one of these guys that, you know, got fired and start, you know, like bad blood, they say, and starts attacking. 
Sure. I was attacking these guys while I was still a cop in the police department. So now April's coming around, and my attorney, John, said that CBS News is coming out, the 60 Minutes people, and they want to do a story. Well, the paper's got a hold of it. You know, they're coming out to interview Doug. I'm in the sheriff's office. You better not talk to 60 Minutes. You better not talk to CBS News crew. You're going to get fired, okay? You know, they already suspended me once for talking to the press like a month before. So he said, you're on thin ice, mister, and all this. Now I'm on the department for 12 years, okay? Detective, investigator. Nothing bad in my file at all. So um, I walk out, I, I ignore him, and I walk out. And then, yeah, 60 Minutes crew came out from CBS, um, but they end up telling me the, 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 the producer was Howard L. I remember this, Howard L. Rosenberg. And what he told me was how they found out about it was the head of the Fraternal Order of Police in Washington, D.C. But see, as a deputy, we couldn't belong to a union. But anyway, this FOP president in Washington, D.C., Fraternal Order of Police, was reading and watching my stories on the news. And he called up a contact he had at CBS News and said, there's a cop out in Loudoun County that's getting screwed. You may be interested in doing a story. So that's what prompted CBS to come out. So they came out, they interviewed me, and they said they wanted to do it on a CBS a 60-minute spinoff called Street Stories with Ed Bradley. And sure. that's what it was on. It was on a Thursday. But while they were up there, the sheriff demoted me to civil process because I was talking to now to CBS News. And they followed me, putting the uniform on and with short pants because I had to borrow it. And then while I was going around serving process, the news crew was following the cruiser. And then some during that day, his name was Terry McCracken, another butt buddy of the sheriff, <laughs> lieutenant. He got me on the radio to so meet me at the parking lot. And no, that's what it was. The old good old boy. Right, right. right. Of his butt. So he said, meet me in the parking lot. And he says, get in my car. Give me a badge and gun. You're basically fired. Something like that. The sheriff continued talking. So they, they fired me. You know, when the news crew was up there and CBS came out, it was the premiere episode on Thursday night in, I think it was, um, May of 1992, Street Stories with Ed Bradley. And I was the first story and it was titled, badge of courage and they did the whole story on me and they put in there while we were up there filming the sheriff fired Doug Papa so Mike that's the story of my 12 year career went down the drain I could never get back on a police department in the United States because of what I did the applications all we know are the applicants and you know because you you talk against other cops you're done as a cop so that was the end of that long story real short I know we only got like 15 minutes left um, two months later, in June of 92, in this two-month period, I was living off my retirement. So I don't have a police retirement anymore. I live on Social Security now. Um, I was doing some PI work for, two, for a couple of attorneys who wanted me to look into some murder cases on appeals. And so I was doing that. Long story short, one day I'm in my apartment. Now, a good friend of mine, he died a couple of years from cancer, great guy. I worked undercover with him. I actually trained him when he went undercover. His name was Peter Serra. He got out of narcotics. He got promoted to sergeant in patrol. He's on lunch. He comes over to my house. He's in uniform. He's over my but We're talking. I get a call from this guy who was a lieutenant on the sheriff's office. His name was Don Moore. And he says, Doug, I'm in the area. I come over talking to you. Yes, he come over. He and he doesn't know Pete's in there. He comes in. Pete's sitting there in uniform. Now, remember this. Uniform cop sitting there. He comes in. The first thing he tells me is, you know I got fired yesterday. I said, no. He says, yeah, because he wanted to run against the sheriff the next election. He says, yeah, the secretary said that, um, told the sheriff that while he was out to lunch, he saw me going to his desk. So they fired me. Now, I'm thinking that sounded a little bizarre to me, right? But what he says next sounded out of this world. Now, I worked undercover almost nine years of a 12 police group. I bought guns, explosives, drugs, stolen property, you name it, I did it. I never heard anything like this. This is what comes out of his mouth, sir. He says, what are you doing for money? I said, some PI works. You know, it was in Virginia. You didn't need a PI license to be a to PI back then. So he says, well... Um, I got an offer for you. 
What? You get this is what he says. Exactly. I remember the exact words. I'm involved with some ex-cops from New York and New Jersey. We're getting ready to kidnap one of the heirs to the DuPont chemical fortune and his wife. We want to hire you about $500 a day we could pay you to help us surveillance and tracking these people because you know how to do this. What do you think? Oh, sign now, me up. <laughs> well, wait. Pete's mouth drops open. I'm looking at him, and I'm saying, what the hell did you just say? And he says it again. We're in an operation to kidnap one of the heirs to the DuPont chemical fortune and his wife. And then he proceeds to tell me this story. It's like a 1,000 heirs. This guy gets $100,000 a month, and he works for this guy that ran for president years ago called Lyndon LaRouche, and the father doesn't mind. This guy's like in his 30s, right? He's not a kid, and he's giving his money to LaRouche. So we're going to kidnap him. And then he mentions this word that I never heard before in my life. He says, we're going to deprogram him. We have a deprogram into the right way of thinking. I'm saying, what, what the hell are you talking about? He goes, oh, it's like reverse brainwashing. So then he starts naming names, oh. okay? Dale and Kelly and Bob Point and all these people like this. And I'm thinking he's nuts. So he says, what do you think? And I says, let me think about it. So he leaves, and Pete's sitting there. And Pete says, Doug, what the hell is he talking about? And I said, I don't know. It sounds crazy, right? <laughs> and he says, yeah. And I said, do me. I said, Pete, I said, Pete, you trust me? He goes, yeah, absolutely. I trust you with my life. I says, do me a favor. Don't mention this to anybody. He says, why? He says, just don't mention to anybody this even happened. So he leaves. The minute Pete leaves, I call up Scott Sutherland from the FBI, who was doing the investigation on the sheriff's office, the corruption investigation, and I tell him this crazy story. And he says, it sounds crazy. But he says, let me check it out. The next morning, he calls me up at 7 o'clock in the morning, and he says, Doug, it's not crazy. <laughs> These, these guys are all doing kidnappings, but five agents are on their way out with a proposition for you. Stay there. So these agents come out into my apartment, and basically what they wanted me to do, they said, how did you leave it with Dawn? I says, I left it open. I said, let me think about it. So they say, we want you to go undercover for us and infiltrate this ring. They've been doing kidnappings. And um, don't call them up until we get the Title III set up on everybody's phone. My phone, his make on the sheriff's office. That's how the start of the undercover operation for the FBI. That was in June of 1992. It was supposed to be a two-week operation. It went all the way through June. Now, July and August was the retrial of Carter. So while I'm doing this, I also testified at the retrial of Carter, and he was found not guilty at the retrial. He's, he was a free man. He had to spend five years in jail. Wow. So all this time, I'm still doing the undercover thing. It went all the way to September, October of 1992, and then they locked everybody up and um, all the conspirators, and then um, I moved to Denver. After I moved, moved to Denver while I was testifying, I wasn't in witness security. I didn't want to go in there, and and that's what happened with that case. While I was undercover for the FBI, I made 60 hours of recordings from body wires that I had on, and they had 100 hours of wiretap Title III recordings, and they locked all these people up. Um, real briefly, I want to hit on this because this is very important. When the habeas motion was going on in the Carter trial back in January, the, the habeas motion, not the trial, the, the habeas motion in January, okay? After Judge Sinclair released Doug um, Carter from jail and said he deserves a new trial, Bob Condon, who was the assistant attorney general for the state of Virginia, who handled the habeas motion, and his boss, who he worked for, his name was John Russell. Bob Condon was an okay guy. John Russell is another POS, and I'll tell you why. After... Carter was released, both of these guys talked to the press. And as, in essence is what they said. 
that when they ordered the state police to come up, when I thought the state police were going to get to the truth and put everybody on the polygraph and told my witnesses, they said this to the press. Can you imagine law enforcement officers, attorney generals, saying this? Oh, sure. That yeah. It yeah. wasn't our job to prove Doug Popper was telling the truth. <sighs> it was our job to discredit him because we wanted Carter to stay in prison and not get a new trial. Well, the papers hammered him on that. Have you ever heard something like that? That It's not the job of the criminal justice system to get to the truth. Mm. It's the job to discredit the cop who put his career on the line, and these two SOBs are making the statement to paper. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because um, the the trial of the kidnappers in December of 1992, John Russell was still the senior attorney general for the state of Virginia. And I hope he sues me, because I've been writing about this for years. He testifies in federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, the Southern District of Virginia, for the kidnappers, believe it or not. And he tells on the stand that he talked to cops that knew me and said, I had a reputation of being a liar and fabricating evidence. I never had a case with John Russell. I wouldn't know John Russell if I bumped into him on the street. So... Larry Lizer was the U.S. attorney. I'm in the witness room. He comes in like a crazy man, and he's all pissed off. And he says, Doug, are you a bad cop? What have you done in your career? You need to let me know. My case is going down. I said, what are we talking about? He says, the number two guy in the attorney general's office of the state of Virginia just got on the stand and said you were a, he said, you know, a POS, yeah, yeah. that you lie. I says, Larry, I never lied under oath. I never did nothing wrong in search warrants. You can call any cop. I work with FBI agents, ATF, Secret Service. You call anybody. He says, Doug, why was this guy? I have no idea why he was doing it. I said, the only thing I know about John Russell, he was ticked off at me when he made that stupid comment months ago about, um, you know, that wasn't their benefit to tell him, to tell him the truth, to discredit me. So he says, I need to call some people. So the own Larry and I, I got the transcripts later on. When I wrote, I wrote a story last year, it's on the Baltimore Post Examiner website. It's um, 80 pages and six chapters, and people got to read it. It's my story. It's free. It's called Police Work: The Breaking of an Honest Cop. I mention everybody's name in that story, including the ones I'm talking about now. It's the whole story of what happened to me. Anyway, to get back to this, when Larry lies across examined John Russell on the stand, he said. Can you name the cops who told you this? Of course, he couldn't. Give me ten cops. Can't tell you. Five cops. No. Anybody. Well, I'll give you two. He names Warren Shand, and he's, who's that? He's the assistant special agent in charge for the Virginia State Police. And he he, he uh, mentions this guy named Ralph Marshall, another special agent for the Bureau of Criminal Investigation. And he says, yes, I spoke to them recently, and they said when Doug was on the task force or something, his reputation, he's a bad cop, he lies to all type of stuff in search warrants. Total BS. So what does Larry do? He subpoenas. I'm in the witness room the following morning, and in comes Warren Chan. Of course, we can't talk because there's a federal marshal in there, and he looks at me. And then I see Rick Ford, an FBI agent I work with on organized crime cases for years. He comes in. He nods at me. My supervisor, and I, all these people are coming in. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Well, what happened was in, 30, in 60 seconds, he puts them all on the stand, and they all say Doug was a good cop. He never lied. He's not corrupt and blah, blah, blah. But the, the, the crucial witness was Warren Shand, who Russell said he spoke to and told him what he testified to. And I got the transcripts at home. It's in the book. It's in the breaking of an honest cop story. Okay. John Russell should have been prosecuted federally for perjury. But let me tell you what he, what happened. Warren Shand gets on the stand. Larry Lizer says, do you know John Russell? Yeah, I do blah, blah, blah. When was the last I talked to him? Oh, I don't remember. 85, 86. 
Really? Because it's 1992, and he said he spoke to him a while ago. So he says, do you know who Doug Popper is? Yes. Who is he? He was a, a detective assigned to the task force. I was a supervisor in the state police. What do you know about him? Good cop, great guy. Yeah, nice guy. He made a lot of cases. Or the, the courts acted on it. Um, what about his reputation for honest integrity? Oh, no problem as far as I'm concerned. Larry says, well, Mr. Shan, this is great. This is, I got the transcripts. Mr. Shan, what if I were to tell you, see how I remember this stuff from 20 something years ago? I love it. Mr. Shan, what if I were to tell you, this is the exact thing he said, from that very witness stand you're sitting in, John Russell said that he spoke to you a couple of weeks ago and you told him Doug Popper's reputation was of a cop who couldn't be trusted. Warren Shan looks at him and says, I haven't spoken to John Russell for years, 95, 86, <laughs> and I never spoke to him about Doug Papa. As far as I know, Doug was a good guy when he, when he worked for me. Russell committed perjury to get those kidnappers off. Then he was going to put Ralph Marshall on the stand, but he doesn't. But you know what happened to Ralph Marshall? He talks to him outside the courtroom, I heard later on, and he tells him the same thing. And Ralph Marshall says, oh, yes, I did have a conversation from what I heard. was What he said was, I did have a conversation with John Russell. But he said, was well, he didn't say anything bad about me. But then he tells the prosecutor, by the way, I tape record every conversation that comes in my phone at state police headquarters, and I've done it for years, because he worked in BCI, I've worked on investigations. So Larry says, you mean you got a recording of John Russell? Yeah, it was, it was like a minute conversation. I didn't say, he, he says, when I heard, he, he didn't say anything bad about me. So Larry says, go get the tape, okay? I heard that that tape, could have put John Russell combined with Warren Chan's testimony in, in federal prison for perjury during a federal trial. And you know what the U.S. attorney did? Larry Lizer's boss. I heard, I was right there. Now Larry Lizer was a good guy. I heard him tell the FBI agent it came from upstairs, meaning the boss over him, we're not going after John Russell for perjury in Virginia. Can you imagine that? Uh, now I can't, I can't get into the rest of the kidnapping case because it's involved. But sure. all those guys that were charged with the alleged kidnapping, trying to kidnap Louis Dupont Smith, um, who was the heir to the Dupont Chemical Fortune, mm -hmm. um, all those people involved were involved in the prosecution of Lyndon LaRouche back in the in the middle 80s, when they were all federal prosecutors. Don Moore worked on the case. John Russell worked on the All those people, there was a long story short, a lot of the people with the LaRouche organization were charged criminally with like credit card fraud and stuff like that. Well, John Russell prosecuted... Those are the, the state cases in Virginia. Don Moore, who was one of the people under arrest in, in, in the kidnappers uh, case, worked for him as one of investigators. The defense attorney for the father who was financing the, the, the alleged kidnapping operation, wasn't alleged, I mean, that thing was taped, was the former prosecutor out of Boston, who was now a private attorney, who put Lyndon LaRouche in jail. So, you oh. know, this, this was like, I mean, you go online and read this stuff. Oh, my word. It's just like, it's total corruption. But my thing was, I didn't care about all this other stuff. What I, what I care about is, to this day, if you're listening to this, John Russell is a practicing attorney to this day in Richmond, Virginia. You are a POS, Russell. You destroyed my police career when you could have told those, those state police agents, Get to the truth, put people on the bottle graph, let's find out if Doug's lying, who's lying, and you did not do it. Then you had the, the nerve to get in federal court and make lies about my reputation that blew up in your face. So screw you, John Russell. And that's and, what I got to say. And, 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 but that's and, what I went through, man. That's what I went through a year's worth of hell for coming out and testifying uh, as a cop to the truth that all cops are supposed to do when you have a badge on your 
on thing. You know, we didn't even get to the damn massacre. I, um, I, I know. Yeah. I'm going to have you back. Look, you you had a, you had a quarter of a century of injustices that were rammed down your throat. I was not about to stop you from telling your story. You know, I, I appreciate it. You know, the only therapy you get, and, and I can tell you something real quick. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Um, Frank Serpico, I spoke to him two days ago, said hello and thank you to both of you guys. Oh, um, Frank's a great he guy. He said, make sure you don't forget. Um, I did a 10-part series uh, a couple months ago on the Baltimore Post-Examiner. I interviewed Frank Serpico for months, and he told his story to me that he never told anybody. It's on the Baltimore Post-Examiner. It's a 10-part series. Frank Serpico tells a story. He unloaded on stuff that he'd never told anybody. He gave me the, the exclusive interview. But I talked to him, too. I talked to him, you know, a couple times a week if I can. And he says, hey, make sure you tell the Hagmans hello from Frank. Don't forget. So I, I almost forgot. Right. Well, you, well, you, you tell Frank Serpico to the, 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 come back any time that we think a lot of him. And I'm going to tell you something, Doug. Um, again, 25 years plus of injustices. This is incredible. I'm so glad you, you took the time to, to lay this out. Um, but, but you know, this is reality. This, it, it, the corruption beyond it is. description. It's, it's, um, you know, I, I still get, when I write stories a lot on police corruption, and I, and I always put that in there, that I don't care what's going on in your police department. The only way, there's so much bad rep that cops get today, and 90% of cops in this country are honest. Yep. It's the 10% that destroy the reputation of every other cop, either through bad shootings, corruption, misconduct, that lies. And a lot of times, this corruption and misconduct is coming from sheriffs and police and their buddies up at the top that get away with a lot of stuff that people at the bottom, including out here at the Las Vegas Metro Police Department, I know a lot of ex-cops who were screwed by sheriffs over the past 20 years that get away with domestic violence and other crimes that cops would be arrested for right here in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's a whole other story we could talk about another time. You can't get me going on this stuff because I just, <laughs> I'm so passionate about it. You know, I wish I could show the camera. It's on the laptop. There are no notes here. There's no newspaper articles. When I talk, I talk from memory because Frank Serpico told me one thing and he's absolutely correct when I interviewed him. He goes, Doug, you and me do this. We never have notes when we talk. You know why? Because somebody who's telling the truth, you remember that truth for the rest of your life. You don't have to look at notes and newspapers. Right. I'm not looking at nothing while I'm talking to you. There's nothing here. There's an empty piece of paper and a pen. Kids had to write something down to find <laughs> information. It all comes from the heart. Because you know what? When you're telling the truth, you can keep rattling off facts and stuff because it's never going to change because it's the absolute truth. I'm sorry I lost... The only thing I ever wanted to do in my life was be a cop and retire as a cop, okay? When I wrote that story, The Breaking of an Honest Cop, the last thing I put in there is this. And if I get emotional, I'm sorry, okay? I'm a man, but this bothers me. All those years that I gave to these casinos and did the honorable thing and I was always up front, okay? What I always missed was being a cop. And that bothers me to this day, that I'm going to die not being a police officer. Uh, you know what, Doug, I... I... I understand, and uh, you have every right to be emotional. I want to say thank you. Uh, on behalf of our audience, on behalf of us, thank you. You're a stand-up guy. Please come back and, and talk with us about Las Vegas and other issues. You've got an open-door invitation. Um, you're the man. Thank you. Thank I, I you. appreciate both of you for coming on and letting me talk. I know I rattled on, but I really appreciate it. Hey, both of you. I'll tell you what. Again, the quarter of a century of injustice, you have every right to. May God bless you. We'll be in touch. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. Be good. Stay safe. Well, God bless every uh, Folks, I'm blown away. I got nothing.
Have a good weekend.